0: Here we are with the Warrior Poet Project podcast. Um, Very special podcast. Really looking forward to this. I'm here with Rick Doblin, who's the founder and director of the MAPS organization, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. I had an amazing time at his conference recently. Um, I've been aware of your organization for many, many years, and it's a real pleasure to be sitting down. And I also have one of the top researchers in the field, Dr. Charles Grobe, who's been working with Rick for uh, quite some time now over uh what is it 20 over 20 years Number 30 20 years, years yeah. almost 25 years 25 years and um helped push forward a lot of the different clinical studies that are some of the foundations for not only maps but some other organizations as well okay. why don't you tell us um you know some of your background as a you know, clinician and then turned researcher.
1: Right. Well, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a professor of psychiatry as well as pediatrics at UCLA School of Medicine. I'm the director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. I've been involved with uh, research with uh, psychedelics since the early 90s. Uh, with the support of MAPS, we conducted the first phase one study examining the effects of MDMA in normal volunteer uh, adult subjects back back from 94 to 95. Also around that time I was involved with Dennis McKenna and Jace Calloway with a uh, fairly extensive uh, series of research investigations in the Brazilian Amazon uh, looking at the range of effects short-term and long-term, of ayahuasca, the uh, bru- the Amazonian plant hallucinogen decoction. Our audience knows qu- yeah. quite a bit about ayahuasca. Well, I, I, I've been I, chirping I, I, about I, 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 it for yeah. some time now, so we'll definitely have to get into that.
0: Um, but let's, let's take it a step back. So you decide to become a clinician yes. and um, start practicing psychiatry. What diverts you to the path, or was it always oh, kind of integrated into your your, no. own, your own life?
1: No, no, no. This was something that... that had a I, from very early on. I was uh, my goal was to work with psychedelics. In fact, back in the early '70s, when I was in my early 20s, I I had an epiphany. One night, uh, I should say. In as inco- many of us do. <laughs> <who are on laughs> the but un- unlike many of you, in an entirely <laughs> drug-free state, <laughs> I was actually uh-huh. a sleep-deprived state. I was working, I had left school, and I was working as a research technician on a dream research study at the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, one of the investigators there was a psychologist named Stanley Krippner, who's uh, still around. He's a professor at the Saybrook Institute in San Francisco. Well, at that time, in the early 70s, this was 72, 73, Stanley had a tremendous uh, collection of books on psychedelics and articles. In fact, he had most of the... uh, uh, articles on the range of psychological and medical effects of psychedelics up to that point he had. And my job was to stay up all night monitoring EEG tracings of <laughs> our subjects who were in the uh, a sensory deprivation Thrilling. chamber. Well, I, I would stare at EEG tracings until they would go into an identifiable dream state. I could uh-huh. see that through uh, rapid eye movements. And I waited for the dream to... To run its course and then to start to fade, and then I would wake the subject up over an intercom, and I would tape record the content of their dream. I would ask them what was going through their mind. Well, mm-hmm. but to stay up all night, I I needed material to read. Sure, I loved to read, and I, I, I discovered this incredible treasure of books and articles that Stan Krippner had, and I was just fascinated with psychedelics. I had some. You know, some experience in the late 60s. I went to Oberlin College. It was hard to miss psychedelics at that <laughs> point in right. time. And, uh, and I, um, uh, uh, y- you know, was very interested in... Um, you know, psychedelics, and here I was doing the study at Maimonides uh, Dream Research. We're actually studying the phenomenon of dream telepathy, and it was actually funded by NIMH at that dream time. Telepathy. Dream telepathy, what is, telepathy. is that? Dream telepathy. Basically, um, there are what we, well, what the lead investigators, Stan Krippner and Montague Ullman, had identified that some individuals seem to have a, uh, great sensitivity and uh, proclivity for ha- experiencing telepathic phenomena during dream states. You mean and communicating with other individuals? Not communicating with others, but picking up on uh, uh, on phenomena elsewhere. So that, Like premonitions? Or? No, no. The model for the study was um, that we would give a sender, a designated sender, a sealed envelope at a set point in time he was instructed to take out of the envelope a picture, he would study it, and then put it aside go to sleep in the room he was in. Meanwhile, down in the other end of the hall in the sensory deprivation chamber was the subject, the dreamer, who had no idea what was in the envelope. Mm-hmm. But we would analyze the content of his dreams to see if there was any correlation. And some individuals seem to have a uh, an exquisite sensitivity for this phenomenon. Now, did you have any statistically significant
0: results in this? Anything that, that you could kind of track? And
1: Well, if you can identify people with sensitivity who had an ability you you could clearly get statistical significance and what the people at the dream lab were able to do was cultivate a population which they they studied and these were the people that I work with and that I but of course I needed to stay up all night so I read all right so we got we I'm going to chase this rabbit hole a little bit farther here so how does that fit into
0: your paradigm then so let's expand this out so let's say this phenomenon does exist how do you explain the mechanism by which that this exists do you you dare to
1: i think there's there's a great deal that we simply don't know i was Mm -hmm. just quite impressed by observing the phenomena in and of itself but if you look at um psychedelics um, you do hear anecdotal accounts of uh, individuals reporting what they believe to be uh, telepathic phenomena. In fact, well, you hear about shared experiences right. quite often. Well, l- where look, people look. have the same content. Right. From so there. you tell me that you and your audience are well versed in uh, uh, the ayahuasca and the lore uh, of ayahuasca. Uh, yeah. Well, a little known fact that when harming, which is one of the primary alkaloids in ayahuasca, was first isolated. And identified it by German chemists in the early 20th century. Uh, one of the first names attributed to the compound before they came up with telepathy telepathine was telepathine there you have it and of course there's you know the great folklore that the tribal people when taking ayahuasca did have the capacity to communicate across great distances sure. in, the, in such a manner have you heard of uh, i'm sure you have uh, it's a silly way to start a question
0: here but the uh the frog medicine combo yeah i hear sure. they have some quite a potential i think they use it for hunting and it seems right. to help them locate right. animals in right. the course. Uh, right. There's well, a lot of phenomena well, yeah, that are use pretty interesting.
1: plant hallucinogens in the Amazon uh, are often used for purposes of um, of healing, finding lost objects, and also assisting. The people who participate in finding game, which are absolutely essential for the survival of the tribal group. Sure, you know
0: my own experience um, with ayahuasca. I had, I've told the story many times, but I'll briefly summarize it. I went down to Peru, and they gathered together three of the, you know, the great maestros of mm-hmm. the of the area from different regions, flew them in for kind of a special meeting of um, the ayahuasqueros and I was able to participate with one of them. Uh, master name Maestro Orlando Chuandama, long tradition of history. And the first day, they, they call him the dragon because he's known for particularly strong medicine. And that's kind of his totem animal, which is unusual for mm-hmm. someone in the jungle to choose that totem animal. But so it is. So the first night, you know, I experienced my full death the death of you know my body was exploding with spiders and everything and i was pretty cool with everything because it wasn't my first rodeo until finally the ayahuasca said oh you're dying of cancer right now you're going to get it and that got me and i was like oh no it won't happen i won't go and then finally i released and of course the medicine had done its job and brought me to the point where i accepted my death and it was a really challenging experience well the next night totally different experience um Basically, I got put into a state of complete elation. I mean, I felt an ecstatic sense tingling between my toes and the top of my head like I've never felt before. It felt like my head was electric and just turned on. And I had visitation from these flotillas. One of them pulled the smoke out of my body, and then this metallic ship seemed to beam this light down underneath my tongue. And a really wild, wild experience. And I was laughing and soaking in this energy. And then all of a sudden, something clicked for me. And all the visions and everything kind of went away. But I could sense a dual reality. Like another dimension came and smashed in on me. And the only people, the shaman was there in that dimension with me. The other people in the the Mm -hmm. session weren't there. Mm -hmm. But the ability that I had to do things in that space... It was oh, yeah. remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I was able, uh, you know, I just had a friend who got in a car wreck. Uh, and so I turned my, I was like, what should I do here? Because I was very lucid and felt like mm. I have a power now. I felt like a superhero for a minute, you know? And I, I looked to him and I could see him where he was and I could look into his body. He was reco- recovering. Mm. It's like, ah, I don't know what to do. Well, maybe if I like breathe some life energy into him or something, I didn't know what to do. But the power to be able to, affect things. And I, I was able to actually look at my future business, you know, before then my business hadn't done very much and see exactly the path I needed to chart. I saw it like a heart with different, you know, arteries and veins feeding in and how to unclog that and fix everything from very technical marketing points to formulas to, I looked at that, I looked at different areas and I then was so impressed with the abilities to do things in that state um, that I ran out of the, ran out of the session and recorded a little video, which is on YouTube. That's uh, uh, like 60,000 hits or something. <laughs> I'm like, you won't believe what's happening. I have to record it. It was like, I felt like I was in that movie contact, you know, and I just received some information. If I didn't talk about it, it would go away. But the point of this being is, you know, when you get to that, and that doesn't happen every time, you know, that's happened maybe one other time, mm-hmm. not even to that extent. And I've taken ayahuasca, I've gone mm-hmm. back to the jungle. But once you've felt that, you understand that there is some other plane that you can access. Right. I and mean, they talk about it in terms of dimensions, and they call that the eighth dimension for them. That was their paradigm. And there's the dreaming dimensions, and then there's that one where you're very lucid and can kind of affect things. But once you've been there and felt that, you understand that there's other different planes, like layers of an onion right. you know, right. on top of right. this one that you can go upward and then <laughs> across and access information from. So that was that was my you know my own experience with it but it certainly makes sense and I think the dream state you know according to their paradigm is that first that right. first layer of the onion right you right, know where right, you're right, escaping right. our reality just yeah. a little bit and so information could potentially travel through that and of course psychedelics get you to potentially that dimension or maybe even depending on the paradigm you use of course you know maybe the the area that I
1: was in where you're fully awake and lucid right. but can see everything with such clarity. Well, the native peoples, who are the true experts in this area, had great facility in navigating these different realms of consciousness and to utilize them to uh, resolve uh, problems, crises, even forecast the future. Mm-hmm. Um, not, you know, not not looking at uh, business graphs and, right. and all the rest, but uh, you know, if there was a threat to the tribal group, it, you know, if there was a need to find a new source of uh, of gain, it, th- these compounds were often used to serve that purpose. So when you went to, uh, well, we, we should finish the
0: story. You had yeah. an epiphany. So let's go back to that. So had, before well, we get very, before we get too tangential, very
1: young, back in my early twenties, one night. Um, I'm uh, watching these EEG tracings and reading uh, some articles and books about the uh, potential value of uh, psychedelics when used within uh, psychiatry and medicine, and uh, it just came to me that uh, I, uh, what I, because I was, you know, what I, I really saw that uh, doing research in this area, helping to explicate the the range of effects of psychedelics, examining their potential to be utilized for purposes of healing was just, to me, fascinating, inspiring. I heard Stan Groff give a talk uh, shortly before then Mm -hmm. about his work at Spring Grove, Maryland. For people
0: who don't know Stan Groff, because we haven't touched on him very much, he was a pioneer both in holotropic breath work and LSD therapy, right? right. Yeah, he,
1: he is probably, both in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and then in Maryland after 67, He probably administered more psychedelics to patients in a legal setting than any other than anybody else in history. So he it was legal it, in Prague for a while? Oh, yes, to, in, in a research context, as right. it was legal in this country in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. in a research context. And Stan Groff was really the, the, uh, one of the great leaders of the field. I heard him give a talk at a uh, humanistic psychology conference, I think it was late 1972, talking about administering um, LSD or uh, DPT, that propyltryptamine, another uh, hallucinogen to patients with terminal cancer who had overwhelming existential anxiety and he had extraordinary results you know he wasn't curing cancer or anything like that but he was ameliorating this overwhelming crippling anxiety sure people would come out of Which it certainly doesn't help you heal you know that's not
0: the right environment to heal your body is when you're under stress and crippling anxiety, right? You know, right, the cortisol right. levels alone created from those yeah. mental emotional states no, exactly. are detrimental
1: to the it, healing cascade, it, exactly. But he focusing in specifically on their psychological reaction, he found it had great benefits. So, that mm-hmm. was also inspirational. So uh, one night about three in the morning, I had this epiphany that that's exactly what I wanted to do. And at that point, I had dropped out of college, and yeah, you know, my father had been quite concerned that of my apparent lack of direction. So he had told me, son, when, if you ever figure out what you want to do with your life, I want you to call me. I don't care what time <laughs> of the day or night it is, I want you to call me. So, you know, here, he, here I was, three in the morning, and I had this epiphany that I knew what I wanted to do. So I picked up the phone. He wanted me to call him, I <laughs> called him. So I woke him up, and I said, Dad, I figured it out. I know what I want to do. He said, oh, what's that, son? I said, Dad, I I, I want to study psychedelics. I want to be a researcher <laughs> what every with father wants psychedelics. To I think there's so much potential to learn about the brain, the mind-brain interface, mental illness, these extraordinary models to treat people where, where conventional treatments don't work. And he said, much to his credit, he said, well, son, there may be something to what you say, but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. So, oh, I knew at that point, I had to go back to school. He was absolutely right, right. I went back to school, I went to Columbia, I did all my Uh pre-med, I went to medical school. I first went into internal medicine, then neurology, then psychiatry, and... uh, And then you wind up with Dennis McKenna in the jungle doing studies on
0: Iowa. Right, exactly. Well,
1: well, yeah, but going back when I entered psychiatry, psychedelic research was completely shut down. It was Mm -hmm. virtually taboo to even talk about it, you know, in in an open setting. It was no longer tolerable. So I just plugged away, kept getting more credentials, stayed on an academic track, uh, first at Johns Hopkins, then then in uh, California... And uh, eventually got into a a situation where I met Roger Walsh, who was a psychiatrist at UC Irvine, who also had a shared vision that this was of great potential value and should be studied again. And Roger gave me a lot of He was a senior professor. I was a junior assistant professor. He gave me a lot of encouragement to... um, to pursue my passion, as as, as he called it. And around that time also, I met Dennis McKenna. Uh, You know, I had heard his brother speak. I I, I heard his brother speak about his little brother, Dennis, who was a uh, Ethnobotanist and pharmacologist who was doing a postdoc at Stanford. So on a, on an impulse, I I picked up the phone one day, tracked down Dennis's telephone number, called him up, and invited him to give a grand rounds at the hospital I, w- I was at. So Dennis accepted, and we really we really he gave a great talk. We really hit it off, and he started telling me about his interest in ayahuasca and uh, and about a research protocol he would one day want to pursue and. Um, and it, at that point in time, he said that he had a collaborator who was a psychiatrist. I don't want to mention his name, but I knew this person fairly well. And I said to Dennis, you know, I think when it comes to crunch time, this psychiatrist is going to drop out. Yeah. He's not going to want to go to the Brazilian Amazon with you. <laughs> and, I tell you what, when you hear from him that he's dropping out, call me up, because I want in. Well played. Well played. And sure enough, about a year later, I get the call and it's, uh, Charlie, are you still (laughs) interested in going to the Brazilian Amazon? And I said, you better believe it, let's do it. So, So that's how I got involved in the first ayahuasca study in 93. And later, I did a subsequent ayahuasca study in uh, 2001 with uh, Marlene de Rios and some Brazilian researchers. On, on, We were asked to come down and evaluate the uh, psychological uh, functional health of adolescents who were participating with their parents in religious ceremonies run by the de Vegetal, the UDV, mm-hmm. one of the Brazilian syncretic uh, religions. So I've done two major ayahuasca
0: studies. Well, I definitely want to get into discussing that a little bit more, but let's bring you into this picture here, Rick, (laughs) and and, uh, talk about how you kind of came. I know you gave, in your opening talk at the conference, Mm -hmm. you kind of told your story, um, how you kind of came about this and uh, came from kind of a personal benefit space and then wanting to give back and share that with the world. So if you want to kind of bring our audience a little bit up to speed on that, and then... uh, then we'll get into the details, the nitty gritty of what you guys are doing these days. It's really <laughs> exciting stuff. Okay, thank you, Aubrey.
2: So I was um, raised um, in uh, in the Chicago area. Uh, my family's Jewish, and I, I was um, for somehow or other. Um, one of the family stories is that I thought the whole world was Jewish. (laughs) You know, my friends, my parents' friends, all of them were Jewish. Well, your world was. My whole world was Jewish. And so there there was this point where I was six years old and um, my parents were sort of, it's like um, telling your kids that Santa Claus doesn't exist or something. They were telling me that the whole world isn't Jewish. And that, um, you know, only uh, the very tiny minority is. And that mm-hmm. was, like, terrifying to me. <laughs> you know, and, but we also have a lot of um, Israeli relatives and distant relatives that were killed in the Holocaust. And my, sure. my parents were very left-wing political mm-hmm. in their orientation. And, um, and I, I felt like I was um, raised to be aware that the... Um, one of the purposes of my life had to be to wrestle with this fact that whole cultures can go crazy and that can dehumanize others and attempt genocide. That that was something that I needed to do. And I also had this uh, sort of crisis later on of what to do about the Vietnam War. So I was the last year of the lottery. And so I felt that not only was their, you know, insanity abroad, but I felt that there was insanity s- at home. Insanity at home. And I felt that like I was um not willing to uh, go to war, but I also was not a conscious so you were drafted? No, no. I was in yeah. the year of the lottery I, I was I, I could I was exposed to the potentially, lottery. Yeah, potentially, yeah. Potentially. Um I, I never actually registered for the draft. Mm-hmm. That was my approach to this is that what I realized is that um, nonviolent civil disobedience was the approach that I wanted to follow, sure. and that the system, this war-making system, that I, I wasn't a conscientious objector because I felt that people like Hitler and the, the German war machine, that, that it's appropriate sometimes to defend yourself.
0: Yeah, my but, father once told me that that was, he, in his opinion, one of the only wars that he felt was justified. Yeah. You know, that that was the one that you got to do something.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so I felt like the the way it was set up um, regarding the Vietnam War is you could be a conscientious objector, but you had to say that you objected to all wars. And right. I felt that wasn't me. And at the same time, I also felt that you want to drain the most energy that you can from the war-making system and that we're indoctrinated in a lot of ways that we don't even notice. Mm-hmm. And so the more I started looking at this, the more I realized that if I didn't register for the draft, that then they'd have to come find me. And so that if I didn't do the very first step, that would be the way to drain the energy. And I anticipated not running to Canada, uh, but going to jail. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Luther King had talked about how people who broke the law and then suffered the consequences in order to be an example for others actually had the highest respect for the law. Right. And so that inspired me. Uh, what that meant to my parents my dad also as Charlie's dad was a doctor um, and my um, their, their view was that I would have a criminal record and I would never be able to be a professional of any kind and I felt that that was um, a price I was willing to pay mm-hmm. rather than go into this um, war situation and I, I also had this very successful uh, grandfather who was a successful business person. And I knew from around the time I was, you know, 14, 15, something like that, that that I would inherit um, about $150,000 that would make it so that I could survive. I could buy food and pay rent. Sure. It wasn't like a massive fortune or anything, but that it was enough for survival. And what that meant is I had freedom. I could do whatever I wanted. I didn't have to have a normal job. That I could survive and that I could then focus on responding to the sort of cultural insanity that I saw uh, so clearly. So what did, you know, what gave you this kind
0: of clarity? You know, was it your family? Was it your parents? Was it something that you did
2: internally? You know, how did you see these things so clearly? Well, I I think it was my my family and also I was a serious guy. I was very... um, uh, involved in reading books, intellectual. Sure. I wasn't very in touch with my emotions at all. Um, and I just grew up with this sense that, that I, in a way, I'm the product of a multi-generational process, that mm-hmm. my g- grandparents, great-grandparents, that uh, they were immigrants, came with nothing, and that they were to focus just on survival, came from Europe, the old country. They, their job was survival. Then the next generation down... Um, they thrived in America. they assimilated, they thrived. and then that gave me the freedom to work on this the deeper threats. And the more you understand Jewish history, it's all this whole litany of people trying to exterminate the Jewish people throughout thousands and thousands yeah. of years. and you know, and so that just sobered me up and I was very, privileged to be able to respond to that mm-hmm. uh, in some way. I just felt that that was my obligation. I just remember the first time I heard the Beatles songs, and I was just like, that's so stupid, these silly love songs. <laughs> it's like, who cares about that? There's this serious stuff going on. Right. So I was, you know, not very emotional dismissing those things. And then um, at the same time, I was raised to believe that psychedelics made you permanently crazy, that one dose <laughs> Something happened in your brain, and then you were screwed for life. You
0: were going to be hiding under a table somewhere, <laughs> shivering, yeah. Uh,
2: incapacitated, yeah. Un- unable to read a book, and just somehow that they were really bad. And, you know, my parents didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they, they, so we kind of had no drugs in our house. and No know,
0: altered states of consciousness, period.
2: None at all. And, and I understand that now in a different way, that, that the irrational, when you let it loose, that's what Hitler was a master of is motivating people's, you know, irrational fears and anxieties and getting them um, to lose their individuality and to become a group that can then easily be manipulated. Sure. So I felt this, um, this need to try to be my own person, to, to think my own thoughts, um, and, and it was really through a book. A friend of mine, I, I was interested in studying the other. So this was also at a time of the arms race with Russia mm-hmm. and the whole idea that, um, you know, in school you would practice duck and cover, get under your school yeah. desk, and that, that would <laughs> help you survive, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the nuclear. nuclear holocaust. Um, so I was, you know, in fear of World War nuclear catastrophe as mm-hmm. well. And so I had to, So I recognized now we have it in terms of global warming, and it's becoming more and more clear in terms of environmental destruction that really things are imperiled. Sure. But I felt that um, somehow I needed to respond to this, and so I was studying Russian, and I was studying the other. And this guy in my Russian class um, had this, uh, who I really liked, and he gave me this book um, to read. And I read it, and I thought it was fantastic, and I handed it back to him. And he said, you realize that some part of this book the person wrote on LSD. And I'm like, that can't possibly be. This is a phenomenal book. And, of course, it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh-huh. by Ken Kesey. So that started changing my mind about LSD. And then when I ended up going to college, and I went to new college of Florida, and it was an experimental college with uh, the idea that the student's curiosity was the most important thing, and that you need to facilitate that. There was no grades, written valuations instead of grades. And um, what they didn't say in the um, brochure that went to the parents is that they had this tradition of all night parties with psychedelics. How dare they? Uh, it, How dare they? <laughs> and, the, and they had the tradition of the, um, there was a swimming pool. There was a woman, her name was Marion Hoppin. Does was,
0: this college still exist? I think, college? You, I think you've just put out
2: the recruiting poster, <laughs> <for> whatever <laughs> college this is. This, this college, we got people enlisting already here. Well, it still exists. It has merged with the state. Um, the, the other part was this woman, Marion Hoppen, who was like this 80-year-old woman, she'd studied with Jung. Mm-hmm. and she was teaching um union psychology at the college and she her family was fairly wealthy they donated this olympic sized swimming pool to the college Nice. but for whatever reasons it became a nudist colony <laughs> the pool did the pool did this and it had, so not only was at the pool all but it was right a big nude pool parties <laughs> well <the> parties <laughs>
0: at, the olympic, at the olympic pool well the college Drifting. actually was Outstanding.
2: Um, the buildings were designed by Pei. uh uh-huh. uh you know it was You know, well known architect, and they were designed to turn into a motel if the college failed. So every room had balconies and it was all around this central palm court. Does
0: this exist? Is this a real story? This is hard to believe it's real.
2: Um, (laughs) Well, in fact, uh, Earth and Fire from Arrowhead, Uh they were friends of mine from college. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, Yeah, yeah. uh, Um, You know, Alan Hopper, who does a lot of work. For people
0: who don't know, arrowhead.org is one of the top resources for information, trip reports, uh, research articles on basically any psychedelic substance. They take a very kind of unbiased approach and just give you the facts as as well they see it and the reports as well they see it. So it's a good good place to do your own research um, if you're interested in in exploring any of these fields.
2: Yeah, so at this college, I I decided that um, I would try LSD. And the very first time I tried it, um, I had this sense that there was the the intimation of... um, Profound depths within myself, mm-hmm. but that also they were blocked by a lot of my overintellectualizing. That I didn't have a fluid access to my emotions, um, and that I felt though that the rituals that we have in our lives, from our religions, most of them, at least for me and for many people, have not sunk very deep. They've been fairly hollow. And I felt that my bar mitzvah, you know, didn't turn me into a man. Yeah, my um, that's
0: one of the that's one of the mm-hmm. topics I harp on quite a bit. I mean, there's yeah. no genuine coming of age ritual right. at right. all. Right. So it's this Remember. kind of nebulous transference yeah. from boyhood yeah. to adulthood, where at some point you're like, shit, I, I guess I'm an adult now, yeah. You, yeah. Know, and and, and, you know. And it's very interesting. And I is. think
2: the whole, uh, you know, the rave movement, the festivals, um Burning Man boom, all sorts of festivals, psychedelic festivals, are that rites of passage sure. for many people. And it speaks to just a deep human need that we have, both to have those deep experiences and to do them in some communal way.
0: Yeah, I just, uh, you know, one of my favorite books is Aldous Huxley's Island. Oh, yeah. Yes. And uh, <laughs> his description, and, and he's actually one of my favorite authors in, uh-huh. in, in general, but, you know, the way that he describes that ritual where the, the younger adolescents, they climb that strenuous climb up to a right. mountain yeah. shrine, and there they ingest the moshka, which is probably some psilocybin or something that he imagined i think he was hoping to create like the perfect psychedelic drug (laughs) that combined mescaline and psilocybin and whatever but whatever his psychedelic was and so combining some conquering of fear physicality joining of the group and then that incredible mind expanding experience that you can get from psychedelics that you know that seems to me like that would be the way to yeah well we were just talking
2: about island this morning as well, um, yeah. but and and I would say that the lesson I've learned from Ireland is that there is this paradise, basically, that all the Suxley writes. And you about. went to
0: college there, but <laughs> I, know, I went to college there. <laughs> but other than um, that,
2: but but the the ending of Ireland is that this remote island paradise, where they have incorporated access to the full range of states of consciousness, that it's a enlightened society, that it ends up being destroyed by the oil industry. Yeah. So the idea for me was that, what, and, and also actually from what I've heard, changed his mind as he was writing the book. The idea of the destruction of this paradise came to him as he was writing. It wasn't originally his intention mm-hmm. to talk about the destruction of it. And so the the lesson is to me that there are no private utopias. There is no way that we can find our own... Little niche, and that was, I think, a big theme of the '60s, was that we can tune in, turn on, drop out by Timothy Leary, that people could go back to the land and create the communes, right. and that we. So could they can't create other- any
0: kind of actual infrastructure. But I think one of the interesting things, almost the poetry of the ending of Island, is that yeah, that as the tanks roll by or the trucks mm-hmm. roll by, he talks something about the crickets still chirping and the wind still blowing through the leaves, basically mm-hmm. saying that we still have a right to control our own consciousness, our own experience, and create our own utopias, even if we can't, right now at least, physically That's, create well, I think, well,
2: I think, wait, I think uh, the uh, end will... Little... So, so, so the last thing just is that, that for me, the idea of um, social change is to go to the heart of the problem, to go to to mainstream psychedelics, to go to the center and try to reform from the outside, mm-hmm. you know, from the inside out because there is no other way and we know that now with, sure you know, again, with global warming. Things are too global and too universal and too interconnected. Yeah.
1: No, I was just going to say, the, the ending in uh, Ireland, I think, reflected Huxley's growing perception that the greater culture at that time in the early 60s was not ready for psychedelics and would would not be able to tolerate their emergence. But here we are, half a century later, the question is, are we ready now?
2: Yeah, and I'd say on that...
0: <laughs> well, it, whether, it, and there's another question. <laughs> are we, if we're not ready, <laughs> you know, is it going to be too late? Well, you know, yeah, like, right. Sometimes you just got to jump. Maybe right. you can fly, maybe you can't, well,
2: but also, we're running, we may be running right, out of time here. Well, the other issue well, is
1: the, the growing degree of environmental uh, sure. catastrophic problems that are emerging. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: I, I think there are a lot of reasons for being hopeful about the culture being ready. I mean, one factor is just the emergence of psychedelic research all over the world now, more psychedelic research going on in legal context than any time in the last, you know, 45, 50 years. Absolutely. Um, But I think that if we look at what happened in the 60s, um, okay, so I'll just say, so then I, I was waking up to psychedelics at the time that Nixon was saying that Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. and. Then I found that nobody came after me for not registering for the draft. So I had so- found this way out of the whole struggle. All these yeah. people were you know, people were shooting themselves in the foot or cutting off fingers, doing different things so they would pa- wouldn't pass their physicals. And I just had to not participate by registering, and nothing happened. So that's where I decided that, um, that what I would devote myself to was to become um, a psychedelic therapist. And that both because I needed the therapy myself and because I thought that the sense of connection, the essence of the mystical experience, that that transcends boundaries, all the different ways that we subdivide ourselves by our race or our religion or our um, nationality or our sexual orientation or all, sure. all these different ways. So, that, so, so, so at age 18, I felt like, okay, now this is what I'm going to do. But I woke up to it. Just after the backlash had sort of completely succeeded in wiping out psychedelic research all over the world, so when now, I, what was that? All right, so let's talk about a little bit about the what you feel was the motivation for that because the backlash. The backlash. Like, what was what were people mm-hmm. yeah. so afraid yeah. of? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think people were afraid of um, the raw stuff of life. Mm-hmm. So if we look at what's different between now and then, and by that I mean also that people were, you know, we're now used to it. My, my son is, um, you know, was playing, um, you know, these the Halo, mm-hmm. you know, multi-party games with um, you know, people, and he was playing with somebody from Saudi Arabia. Yep. You know, so kids these days are totally used to globalization, to One World, to the, the global warming, but I think at, at the time people were more stuck you know i even believe it took me a while only really like the last 10 years that i started questioning the american exceptionalism that we're the greatest nation on the world in the history of the world because we're somehow better than other people right you know so i kind of bought into that um you know unconsciously i so i, I think that in the 60s people didn't talk about death there was my aunt died of uh, cancer when she was 21 um and they didn't, my family didn't even tell her that she had cancer. That birth was um, completely um, different. Women were tranquilized. Men weren't involved in the delivery room. Um, spirituality, in terms of meditation, was seen so as completely weird. Yoga was weird. Do you Yoga see, do you see
0: organized religion as the culprit? Like, where did this ship get off course?
1: Well, let me, let me say something. You, you know, psychedelics in many respects, are catalysts for change. Sure. And in the 60s, I don't think the culture was ready for the kind of change, the altered perspectives, the altered yeah. views that, that people would develop. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, psychedelics were uh, interfused you know, with the anti-war movement, the counterculture, uh, you know, fed sure. into the anti-war movement and it was seen as, uh, you know, as a threat to the state, a threat to cultural stability. There was also the problem that, uh, to an increasing degree, very young people were experimenting on their own without any guidance, without any sense of how to optimize safety. And, and inevitably, it, yeah. some, some... Young people and some older people got into a lot of trouble and had uh, psychological breakdowns to one degree or another, and this alarmed the authorities. Um, Unfortunately, you know, it it, it took the rug out from under the momentum that was going on in psychiatric research with with psychedelics. There were some great advances being made, but because of the cultural reaction, everything got frozen. Everything was halted in its track and shut down... For decades, until uh, Rick came along. <laughs> yeah, well,
2: well, both
0: of you guys came along, yeah, it but, sounds but I like.
2: Think where we're at now is that in 1974 was the first hospice to sort of change our approach towards death, and now in 2004 there was over 3,500. So it takes multiple decades, generations, for culture to adapt. The birth process is completely different now. There's birthing centers, women aren't tranquilized as much, men are sure. in the delivery rooms. We accept um, meditation and yoga as something that's potentially healthy that people can do it and integrate it within their, you know, business life for the rest of their life. And there is this growing sense, both of crisis in terms of what we're doing to the environment, and then also in terms of this growing sense of how we're interconnected, which I think is challenging all of these fundamentalists and yeah. what what seems like a, a retreat to fundamentalism is a sign of weakness, I think, rather than a sign of strength.
0: It's a backlash to the trend that's already developing. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I think that, um, you know, as Charlie is saying too, that our culture is ready for it, but that we have to be very careful and slow and methodical, and we also have to be much more aware of the downsides, that, that there is no panacea. Psychedelics are not a panacea, sure. that the cultural context can actually... Um, you know, overwhelm the power of the psychedelic for change. And if you look at some of the ayahuasca churches, they're hierarchical, homophobic, patriarchal. You That's know, something that,
0: yeah, that is a, definitely a misconception. I mean, uh, you know, people think that if you do the medicine, you're going to be a good person.
2: Yeah. You know, right. and
0: I've known, you know, known of shamans who, who have been in the traditional lineage. You know, tenth mm-hmm. generation mm-hmm. shamans and different medicine keepers, both ayahuasca, boga, different different things, who just because they know the medicine and do it doesn't mean they're actually good or moral individuals. You know, I mean, and there's, you get these cases and stories of different people abusing their power, taking advantage of people while they're, you know, under the influence of the medicine. And um, it can be an incredibly powerful, useful tool. But if someone makes the conscious choice to override that, the mind is amazingly powerful as well. And you can use these altered states either for recreation or for,
1: ill will from Alice. Sure. Charlie yeah. Manson used to uh, dose his uh, his group, his cultic followers, and uh, plant suggestions in them that they should go out and do horrible acts. So just yeah. taking a psychedelic doesn't necessarily turn you into a good person. And right. It's really all about set setting, intention, context, integration afterwards. You know,
2: a lot of like the, the Castañeda books were really big mm-hmm. uh, at one time and if you look at them now in retrospect a lot of them were about struggles for power. They they weren't about mystical experiences necessarily. They weren't about healing. They were about shamans struggling for power. Mm-hmm. So what what really came together for me, and we, we talked about Stan Groff earlier, is that I found that myself, when I first started taking LSD, that I had this the intimation that this could be healing, but I felt that my personality, my culture, that I wasn't really ready for it. Yeah. And so I ended up having difficult lsd experiences Uh, quite a few but i I kept at it but they were very difficult i had a hard time letting go and so i went to the guidance counselor at this paradise college (laughs) and the guidance counselor as you would anticipate at a college like this um was very sympathetic and he said um, that he had a manuscript copy of realms of the human unconscious by stan groff before it was even published as a book, and he suggested that of course I, he does, <laughs> of course, and he suggested I read it, and so I read it. You and go
0: to a guidance counselor now, and they say you probably have mono, and let me give you some Adderall. <laughs> Get back to work.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, so when I read it, this book was about, um, for me, the the saving grace, and what I'm working on. Are, there's two of them. One is science, and the other is healing. Mm-hmm. So Stan was focused on the scientific investigation of spiritual and therapeutic experiences. So the the self-critical, the, the the constant search for truth that science represents, that he was talking about this scientific process that was looking at questions of spirituality, values, you know, different religions. But his reality testing, his his approach was, are we able to use this to heal people? In terms of psychotherapy can they be happier can they be more productive so i think rather than going into these altered states with the goal of power if the goal is healing and rather going in trapped by the cultural background that you've grown up in but liberated by this ruthless pursuit of the truth that is what the scientific process represents Mm -hmm. that i thought that combination the science and the healing and the psychedelics with the understanding that the political implications of going through all of these experiences to having this sense of unity would produce people who were more tolerant and less scared of the other, Right. that that was something that was worth devoting my life to.
0: I think that makes sense. You know, the way I can kind of describe it is there's a lot of steps you can take to get You know, that kind of awareness. Meditation obviously works. Spending time camping out in nature. You know, you can kind of relax your bodily systems, move your mind out of the way. All of that is very helpful. Isolation tank, you know, flotation tanks are a great tool, Um, different tools, but to really, when you're really off balance, like most of us are, you know, our world isn't conducive to being and living in that state of balance. Um, These psychedelic medicines can really move a lot of earth. You know, they're a bulldozer, not a shovel or a spoon. You know, you can start to move material and make changes faster if your intent set setting everything yeah. is in the right way. It's just giving you more force and more momentum to
2: achieve something that you want to achieve. Yeah. And I, I had the, the in a way the good fortune of learning a lesson pretty early, which is that you can't do everything in the altered state. So that I tried to expedite my development. You know, I saw the sixties crash and burn and I realized that a lot of it was you know, from the backlash, but a lot of it was self-inflicted by the advocates, the leaders who had their own problems that weren't fully working through them. Yeah. And that there was this, um, you know, an arrogance and um, immaturity. And so I ended up realizing that I would just, uh, you know, I felt initially that I would do these psychedelics very, very frequently and often in order at higher doses in order to sort of accelerate my development. And I ended up doing a three-week primal therapy intensive, where I was alone in a room for three weeks. Got out an hour a day to work with a therapist. Couldn't have books, you know. Got super into my dreams. I did, you know, month-long encounter groups. And I felt that I wasn't where I wanted to be. And I finally, I sat home. I went to my parents, and um, moved back home for a couple months. And my my after my epiphany about being interested in psychedelics, the, the second idea was that I needed to get grounded, that you have to work in balance, and that yeah. that balance, and that I was so over-intellectualized and so ethereal that I needed to start building things. So I ended up having 10 years of um, building things, building houses, building custom wood houses, and, mm-hmm. um, and th- that had really helped me get grounded. But I think that it's too easy to talk about the psychedelics without talking about the integration. And so in the studies that Charlie and I are trying to work on now with MDMA for autism or in the work that he's done with psilocybin with end of life and the work that we do with MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, there is a long therapeutic process punctuated by these psychedelic experiences as sort of like you said, the bulldozer to open things up. But then it's encased in this non-drug psychotherapeutic process to anchor those experiences and to integrate them. And I think it's all too easy for people to not so much pay attention to the preparation and the integration and just focus on the drug experience. And that's in no way enough. And that's where we can go off track.
1: This is all about optimizing safety and therapeutic outcome. The more care you put into preparation, Cultivate the intention, establish rapport, do it in an optimal setting, help with integration afterwards. It it all leads to greater likelihood of positive outcome and safer outcome.
0: You know, I I get a a lot of people ask to me and and come to me about these, you know, there's some ayahuasqueros who come make their tour Mm -hmm. through the US. And obviously, Mm -hmm. um, they're doing that in an illegal setting, which is Mm -hmm. something I can't consciously recommend to people. I've always gone down to Peru to do it myself, but there's also something to be said, and I'm sure there's good medicine and good healing that's happened. I've heard good reports from it, but there's something to be said of not just, you know, okay, maybe you skip a meal if you're going to do ayahuasca here in, you know, San Diego or something like that, but when you're actually going down to the jungle, you know, you're meeting with the, the, the shaman or the ayahuascaro the curandero beforehand, you know, you get on a dieta, you're in the set and setting, you start to kind of sink in, and it doesn't even have to be a lot of talking about the preparation or talking about the integration, you know, just being in part of that process can get you a lot of the way there, you know, because they built that kind of tradition around it. So you take the medicine, you go back to your hut, you hear the sounds of nature, the jungle, you know, then you see him the next day. And depending on I remember I had a funny experience where at one of my sessions, he blew a lot of the um, nicotina rustica, the tobacco that they use down there, just all over my body. And I was like, oh, this kind of smells good and interesting. I didn't have a very deep experience. Went back, and I had the most ridiculous purge of my life. I was out of every orifice like (laughs) a madman, like a fire hydrant. The person who was rooming with me was just cracking up. and I was like, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. And then, of course, the shaman comes to me the next morning and just smiles. And He knew exactly what he was doing with that intention. Yeah, and
1: if we're going to use these, these compounds, I think it's really important that we learn from the native peoples that have worked with such plants for millennia. And uh, they, 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 they understand how to optimally uh, structure for safety and for outcome. At the, the diet uh, for something like ayahuasca is... Very important. Very important. Also, there's sec- sexual abstinence, which a lot of uh, North Americans and Western Europeans don't want to address, but there's a reason why the native
2: peoples do do have that as part of the preparation. Mm-hmm. I, I think we also, though, have to be careful here of this kind of naive romantic notion that these people from the jungles for thousands of years are somehow or other so in tune with nature that that we should from our Western civilization adopt what they're doing. And so I I think, Harvey, you were speaking about how they have within their culture certain ideas that are difficult for us that we would reject. Sure. So I think that it's, there is a lot that we have to learn from them, but also it's a two-way street. And I think the scientific process, the skepticism, and a lot of what concerns me with um, ayahuasca and shamanism is the power dynamics. Mm -hmm. So that... You know, often you, you will hear about shaman who take the drug and then do it to you. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes people don't even take the drug. shaman takes the ayahuasca and then does all these rituals and then heals you. So I think the idea that we have encased in what our therapeutic approach is, our treatment manual, which is on the MAPS website, if people want to read it, about our approach to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, it's this understanding about empowering the individual to heal themselves and that that's the real source of the healing. And sure. we want to help people to work within their own psyches to a, in a more effective way, but that they have to do the work so that you can take a psychedelic and you can run away from your issues and not... Make any progress, or you can take it and do different. Sometimes work.
0: you can try to run away, but it'll catch you. <laughs> it'll, it'll track you down from behind,
2: like Ray Lewis, and yeah. tackle you even worse yeah. if you try to run away. That's true. Yeah, for me, I, I do see that the the, the, chal- the key to doing LSD is surrender.
0: I think the and, key to most of these things, you know, witness, allow, surrender, and that's a big big part of it. The more you yeah. fight, the less yeah. headway you're going to get, and the more challenging your experience will be. Yeah.
2: But but I don't think there's this ancient wisdom that we can adopt and transfer without translation into the modern context. I think we still have a responsibility to bring what we've learned from the Western culture to bear on this and that's where I see Right. right now there's an incredible interest in science and religion coming together that I think has been blocked for hundreds and hundreds of years so that there are now studies that are being done with meditators who are being administered psilocybin to see if it deepens their meditative practice. And it used to be when we had the backlash of the 60s, there was this incredible um, exploration of non-drug approaches. And many of the religions, many of the um, schools of meditation, Zen meditation, they have this antipathy towards drugs, their intoxications, and at least in their presentation. And so I, I've found now that you know, 40, 50 years later, there are people who have given up drugs, who have been lifetime meditators, who are now finding that um, they can make more progress by reintegrating psychedelics, not giving up the meditation, but that these kind of blended approaches are, I think, more powerful. And also, as we have science look at um, questions of spirituality, mysticism, um... You know, I think it was Albert Einstein that talked about how true science and true religion are not really opposed to each other at all.
0: Well, certainly, when you start looking at the new quantum physics discoveries that are coming out, everything yeah. is starting to become, emerge merge a little bit, yeah. uh, a little bit more. But I, I think you're bringing up a good point, and I think people tend yeah. to want to po- want to polarize themselves yeah. on yeah. one way or the yeah. other. You know, oh, okay, all everything indigenous is good. You yeah. know, that's right. well, that's not true. And then some people say, oh, only science is good. This is all magic and fairy tales and crystals, and that's all bullshit. I think really the, the key is to combine everything. I mean, we have the resources now with the globalization, with the access, to combine the wisdom that the native people have brought, integrate that, all right, maybe we can't bring the jungle along with us, but they've learned from experience some very valuable things that they can apply to the process. Maybe we can do that in our own way. Or, you know, for some of us, going actually back there to do it really works well. certainly worked well for me. But combine the traditional with the scientific, with all the other research that we've gotten from other fields, you know, the Mm -hmm. meditation fields and everything, and combine a cohesive system of just practical matters of what works, what creates the best, most reliably good outcome for people. And I, I think it's going to be a combination of everything. But I think you're cautioned to not be overly romantic about either side, you know. Or y- you, can, you can caution the other way not to be so into the science that you disregard the wisdom from 3,000 years of use or however yeah. many thousand years. I think, think the key is to kind of bring it all together. And that will ultimately, in, in the utopia that I see, potentially, that's what it is. You know, it's a combination of learning the, the scientific you know what the mechanism of action exactly is how to best prepare yourself and then combining that with you know the best research and how to integrate how to prepare and and then perhaps even bringing back in some kind of because I think people need something of a little bit more of a a ritual too I think that can add a real element to it some Mm -hmm. kind of anchor in something that's not part of their normal world you know and I think that does add something special and unique to kind of landmark the experience So bringing back in a bit of that traditional cultural symbolism if nothing else i mean that's that to me is the ideal future for what this could potentially be and the steps you guys are taking are what's absolutely vital you know getting these drugs looked at as potentially therapeutic because as you've mentioned many times in the conference they have a list of the way that they're classified, I and mean, you can jump in at any time, is that they have no clinical benefit and have only negative results. Well, right. you're proving quite the opposite with yeah. everything that you're studying.
2: Yeah, just for some of your listeners who might not know this other part of my history. So, you know, I, I spoke about being basically a, a drug-using rebel, a criminal. Um, but the arc of my—they're still
0: thinking about these psychedelic all-night <laughs> swimming pool parties. Don't worry about that. Well, They've forgotten about that. that was, they, don't,
2: they don't hold that other against you. <laughs> to me, it's a pattern of good choices that you've yeah, established. Yeah, so good far. fortune. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but the the arc that I'm trying to to work on with own, my own life and also with the psychedelics is to sort of integrate them in the mainstream. So I did realize that the politics were blocking a lot of this research, and so I felt that it was important for me to move my primary focus from becoming a psychedelic therapist myself to becoming a therapist for the culture. So I ended up going to Harvard to the Kennedy School of Government and have a master's and a PhD from there in public policy, particularly about the regulation of psychedelic uh, medicine and psychedelic research, research with schedule One drugs. And so I've become more mainstream as I've grown up Mm -hmm. in many ways although I have this strong interest in psychedelics. And I think that our culture is at this point where we have been able, through Charlie and I and others, have been able to work with the regulatory agencies around the world with um, the psychedelics. So we can work with the police, with the DEA, with um, the FDA and the European Medicines Agency, and with you know, institutional review boards that were created um, to protect the rights of the human subjects after the Nazis did all these experimentations on people. Mm-hmm. That that we can now work with regulatory agencies to get permission, so that it's not such a unusual thing. But what is unusual is that we cannot do this with marijuana. So that right now the federal government has a monopoly on the supply of marijuana. That if you that can be used. In government-approved research, I mean, it's it's ludicrous to say that the government has a monopoly <laughs> on right. the supply of marijuana, but you know, we tried for seven years to buy ten grams to do the first studies on vaporizers, and we had to buy it from the National on Drug Abuse. They refused to sell it to us. So that it seems like, don't you think that that trend is already,
0: it's already kind of happening, though? I mean, with the medical legalizations in these states, I know the government's yeah. trying to. Uh, tinker with those laws and mess them up a little
2: bit, but it seems like that's already going to work. Well, I think so, and I think again, you know, one of the first lessons at the Kennedy School is, you know, there is no such thing as the government. Right. That that there's different individual parts of it sometimes working at odds. That there's not this unified yep. government all going the same way. So that I think the the resistance that it's like a river running downhill and going around boulders. So the resistance to doing medical marijuana research. Which has been in existence um, pretty much since around 1968, 1970, when marijuana was discovered to help control nausea for cancer chemotherapy patients and to help them get their chemo and to help them generate an appetite. And at that point was when the research was really mm-hmm. obstructed. That ever since then, the support has been emerging around the Federal route, the FDA route to make medicine. So we just New Hampshire just became the 19th state to endorse medical marijuana um, on Tuesday nice. like last week. A few days ago, the
0: um, New Hampshire. Why are you 19th? Your motto is "Live free or die." <laughs> Get with the program, New Hampshire. You should be number one. Look at your state motto. Read your flag.
2: <laughs> yeah. Now all the New England states are pro medical marijuana states, and you know we have Colorado and Washington that have legalized marijuana. So. The, the federal government has tried to block it, but the states have revolted, basically. Yeah. And so medical marijuana is moving forward. And you know we do a lot of work with the drug policy reform movement. And one of the things that um, was astonishing to me to find out is that some of the recent polling that was done, now keep in mind that there's now millions of dollars and um, the most um, sophisticated political operatives working on marijuana legalization. There are some on the other side, too, but the, the whole drug policy reform movement has moved forward incredibly. And so one of the findings was about why people voted for marijuana legalization. And you would think that the most important predictor of whether somebody is in favor of legalizing marijuana is if they smoke marijuana. You'd think that they wouldn't want to be a criminal. But that's not true. There's another factor that is more determinative of whether people are for marijuana legalization. And that's if people know a medical marijuana patient. Really? Yeah. So what that means is that we are bombarded by information. A lot of it we know we don't, shouldn't trust. But when we have, like, actual, actual direct mm-hmm. information through word of mouth, through people we know, that marijuana has been helpful to them, then they call into question the whole system of prohibition. So, what we also That's see. That's a great
0: fact for you to have because, yeah. and at Hefter and all these institutions, because you're yeah. coming out with these studies, there's yeah. double blind clinical data yeah. about the benefits of psilocybin, MDMA, yeah. things like that. And I've noticed it as well. It is a really powerful tool when talking yeah. to people who are entrenched yeah. with their belief systems. You know, you say, hey, this was shown to have XYZ benefit without this negative effect that you think exists because of some propaganda
2: machine many years ago. Yeah, that, that actually led this, this idea of how do we change people's minds. You know, some of the things I learned at the Kennedy School and others, other people as well, that what we we're trying to show is not that psychedelics are helpful to aging hippies, <laughs> of which Charlie and I are representatives, but that they're helpful to the mainstream. We, we just did the first study of LSD-assisted psychotherapy in over 40 years in Switzerland. And it was for people who were anxious about end-of-life issues. Mm -hmm. And the most important factor, in addition to saying that it helped people with anxiety and there wasn't any drug-related serious adverse events, the most important thing to say about that particular study is that 11 out of the 12 subjects had never done LSD before. So all of us are going to face death. We're all somewhat... varying degrees anxious and uncertain about it and so picking psychedelics for end of life is both humane and strategic from a broader political way working with veterans even
0: better in my opinion would be to get that done (laughs) knock that out earlier so you're not afraid of it your whole life right but you know at the end better late than never you're totally right
2: (laughs) but that gets us to this idea that we talked about earlier about psychedelics as rites of passage because when they have been used that way people do get a different sense of time and a different sense of death Absolutely. and what it hopefully helps people to do is to appreciate that we're really each of us only here in our current human form for a very short time. Yep. And that rather than think about um what life is going to be like at have in heaven or hell or with the flames or whatever, you know, that that we need to appreciate the the brief moments that we have. And I think that's what the mystical experience often can do is it can help people to lose a fear of death and become more motivated to change the life that we know consensually that we all share together and I I think working with um, firefighters and veterans and now we might have our first police officer um, going through screening right now to be in our post-traumatic stress disorder study so we're trying to show for the police that the work that we're doing is beneficial for them And then there's a whole series of studies with psychedelics for the treatment of addiction. Now, addicts, again, are the other, and they're demonized often, but to show that a drug-assisted psychotherapy session, a psychedelic-assisted can help people who have problems with drugs, shows that it's not the drug that's the inherently good or bad thing. It's how it's used. Mm -hmm. So I think we've developed a way to move forward with our research. And now that we're talking about an MDMA study with... Um, autistic adults who are have social anxiety because um, of various um, difficulties understanding human emotions or relating to others, that that opens up a, a, another area where many, many families are very concerned about their, their kids who have autism or adults with autism that, that we're starting to break out again of these the stereotypes of the hippies who did these drugs sure. for recreational purposes. So I, I think the culture is ready if we're careful and also if we're patient, not to push it too fast.
0: I, I agree with that. All right, well let's take a let's take a quick break here. I'm going to go use the bathroom, <laughs> and then I think what I'd like to do from here is start getting into um, you know let's go medicine by medicine uh, and talk about where okay. where the field stands and what yeah. some of the significant results that you guys have found, and uh, of course start to go all the way, and then maybe come back to a little bit more. Um, you know I want to touch a little bit more on uh, some of the the new scientific discoveries that are coming out and how that's kind of merging with some of the intelligence and also go back to a little bit to um what you talked about of, of why cultures go crazy and how yeah. this whole movement if successful how this can the ripple effect might take place and really make it a, a change that could benefit the world in a larger way so take a yeah. break and we'll be back for more action <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're back here with the full team. On the break, we've been discussing some of the religious exemptions. And uh, I think, Rick, you were going to go back into the, the first one, which is the Native American church and the ritualistic use of peyote.
2: Yeah. And so there's about half a million members of the Native American church that have legal permission from a U.S. Supreme Court case to use peyote as part of their religion. But the important point from the perspective of the federal government is that it was limited. And so It's the only time in American history where a religion has had a racial qualification.
0: Yeah, Charlie was saying they have to be 25% Native American in order to partake in the in the church ritual. Yeah, Yeah.
2: now that's from federal law. A lot of state laws don't hold that. But and how do you
0: how do you justify that?
2: I mean, what do you you have to show? Well, there is no justification for that. You know, how do you have a religion which you have to have a racial? requirement. But I think the the point and is And that's that, a Jew that's saying that by the way. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah I, I think from the perspective of the government trying to um, limit it. And and I guess this helps explain why I've felt that the medical approach has the most potential, because ultimately we need both religious freedom and freedom from religion. Yeah. So that we should all of us have our fundamental human right to explore our own consciousness through whatever mechanisms we choose, and that for the legal system, the fundamental religious freedom touches too much on legalization. So that's why they've tried to say it's only for groups, and ideally groups where you require Indian blood or groups where you are so part what's of the this what's the Brazilian religion yeah. and,
0: and the Brazilian religion so for the Church of Native American it's the Indian blood that's the yeah, obstacle right. and yeah. then for the UDV it's just their natural intrinsic hierarchical nature that's preventing people well, from opening a, you know, West Hollywood UDV, well, I, Santa Monica UDV, uh, Austin Texas UDV. Right, no, it would be wildly popular. Yeah, Anybody no. from the UDV that wants to open a church in Austin, I can get you. Yeah. I can get you members. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 you won't, be, you'll fill. You'll fill the pews. Let's just, no, no. just yeah. it, say it, that.
1: It, it's very centralized in UDV. It's hierarchical, and it, it, there are, there can be no new temples uh, without the blessing. Uh, of the central body, the governing body for the UDV. So it's a very, very strong centralized control. And you know, I think as we get,
0: you know, I still want to go back, stick to the idea of kind of going one by one on all these things, but as you, that to me is kind of a, you know, proof in point of the fact that just because you're taking ayahuasca doesn't give you a global vision, because it would seem like you would think, oh, these people are taking ayahuasca, that must mean that they know the benefit, and they're going to want the greatest amount of people
1: to at least have access to it, have the free will and, and option they, to do it. They, they, they know yeah. the benefit, but I think they're also concerned that if if it becomes too popular, too many people gravitate towards it, it might jeopardize the legal protection they already have. Right. I think that's that, that, that's the concern. Even though the
0: Supreme Court did already... Rule unanimously in right, their favor. Right. Well, that's pretty good backing. I mean, well, you got the right, highest
1: court in right, unanimous. Right. They're never unanimous. <laughs> in this case, wasn't it interesting that, uh, at least on this occasion, uh, the, the the Supreme Court's, uh, uh, you know, pr- prioritized protection of freedom of religion rights o- over the over the uh, enforcing the dr- the drug war, which I thought was a very interesting. Phenomenon, very interesting. You know. Yeah. So let's go. We're
0: already on the topic of ayahuasca, so let's go and um, kind of talk about, um, you know, a bit about the mechanism of action, which I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with. Obviously, you're... Um, combining a monoamine oxidase inhibitor with
1: active DMT. Dimethyltryptamine. Dimethyltryptamine. If you take dimethyltryptamine orally by itself, nothing happens because it's inactivated in the gut by the monoamine oxidase enzyme system. However, if you brew the uh, plant containing the DMT with another plant containing harmala alkaloids which have monoamine oxidase inhibiting action that allows for it, you know it prevents deactivation it allows for active absorption and uh, entry into the central nervous system and it's a very powerful powerful activator of CNS mm-hmm. activity
0: and so what there's a lot of kind of mysticism around the DMT molecule what's your take as a researcher and clinician,
1: oh, on the spirit molecule. The you're spirit referring? molecule I'm referring to. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, uh, our friend Rick Strassman, had, you know, he's for years been talking about um, endogenous DMT, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, playing a role in just conscious activity. My friend and colleague Jace Calloway from Finland had a theory that it's actually our endogenous DMT, along with endogenous beta carbolines, which have MAOI activity, that allows you know that that are secreted during sleep that explain the dream on state, a cellular yeah. level the dream state which i think is quite fascinating mm-hmm.
0: and and from the shaman's perspective i think there's they definitely at least in their mind there's some association with that as well as far as life death, and the role that dmt can yeah, provide to get access to those powerful different
1: powerful compound when 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 smoked or injected it has virtually instantaneous uh, although you know albeit short-lived effects altering consciousness allowing individuals to access a, you know what they often report is a very profound realm of uh, of spiritual awareness uh, it ends fairly quickly but could it leave a lasting sure. uh, impact with ayahuasca it's, it's, also, it's
0: also what I've found one of the leading causes of tattoo creation that <laughs> oh, I've, no? not, I've <laughs> noticed you DMT? see somebody with I t- oh, man I had this trip I smoked <laughs> this DMT and I saw this thing and it was amazing and now it's here on my arm <laughs> <laughs> was that true was for very you? Perfectly. it wasn't true for me, no I've, I got some other thing. well in a certain way I have a two, I have a Rattlesnake with oh, two have, t- with yeah. two uh, tails yeah. on it, <laughs> the which was sure. the, the serpent. And certainly, there's a lot of serpent imagery that you see on ayahuasca. The yeah. serpents constantly around that. And of course, I read Narby's book and yeah. uh, found that.
2: Although I, I would say then that that I'm still a little bit dubious that if you had a um, scientific experiment where people would be given um, without their in a double-blind manner, some would be given ayahuasca, some would be. Uh, And and you can do ayahuasca in freeze dried encapsulated preparations. That's how it's being researched in Spain. Uh Um, So if you gave people capsules, some would be ayahuasca, some would be psilocybin, some would be LSD. I really have my doubts as to whether there would be more visions of serpents in the ayahuasca group, but maybe. I I won't just say for sure not, but I would like, before I would believe that these particular visions are associated with the molecules rather than with the cultural context and our what, understanding. What, what do you make of,
1: of what Claudio Naranjo
2: said when he
1: administered synthetic harmoline to subjects back in the 60s, I think in Europe, and he claims without uh, giving them much information on the you, you know, plants that is is in, that his his subjects reported uh, serpent uh, snake imagery.
2: Well, I think that's an important point of evidence. I have a lot of respect for Claudio Naranjo. We just republished his book, uh, The Healing Journey, right. which is one of the classics of psychedelic literature about his work with various psychedelics, MMDA, MDA, Ibogaine, and harmaline, and this was published i think around originally around 1972 with work that was done in the late 60s. It's a beautiful book about the therapeutic approach. So i have a lot of respect for Claudio's um, approach. it, would be, it would be
0: really interesting to see cuz that would indicate some kind of cool thing. At least yeah. to, you know hypothesize
1: about what is
0: these these well, altered states.
1: the flip side is indigenous people when describing their experiences to early investigators, would talk about uh, astral projection and, and 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 their their spirit flying through the air and visualizing ultra modern cities. Now, how would indigenous people from the remote forests be aware of uh, you know what what a uh, futuristic city might look like?
2: Yeah, That's also well, I would curious. like to see that replicated in. Modern well, right. scientific get to work, get process. to work, then, Rick. Right. Yeah, <laughs> You to work. got a lot of studies we'd like to see here. Right? <laughs> yeah, these are all anecdotal accounts. We sure. need to make, rigorously yeah. explore. Yeah. yeah, and I, I guess I, I should add here that we need to. We have limited resources. That the the results, of the studies that Charlie and I are doing, they're really collaborative efforts by thousands of people. Maps has thousands of members who donate, um, some as little as five or ten dollars, and others. You know, substantially more, but that we're doing nonprofit research. That we are not able, at least as of yet, to get government funding. Sure. These drugs are all off patent, so we're not. There's no pharmaceutical interest, and the major foundations are still finding it too controversial. We had a meeting in England with the Wellcome Trust you know, a couple of years ago. The Wellcome Trust has 20 billion dollars in assets. They're the largest foundation in England they're set up by the Burroughs, welcome by the pharmaceutical industry they're interested in neuroscience we met with them to talk about MDMA uh, research for post traumatic stress disorder and they talked about it as a reputational risk and I said, it's a reputational opportunity for you to get in, but they yeah. they perceived it as a reputational well, risk. So. I
1: can't see the pharmaceutical industry uh, so sponsoring no. this research because wh- wh- where's the profit margin in a compound that might need to be administered on only one occasion? And, where's make- the,
0: and what's what's the profit loss yeah. from all of these different yeah. Yeah. residual yeah. things yeah. that are approximating some kind of... Yeah. You know, cure. So that gets back to... and whatever. Well,
1: they they make their money on compounds that are administered daily, for weeks, for months, for years. Methadone,
2: for example. Yeah, yeah. So so this question, there are so many interesting things we could do to psychedelics, but because we have limited resources... Couldn't Couldn't you tag
0: on, you know, there's some ayahuasca studies that are going on now, right? Couldn't you tag on just a questionnaire from... About, well, there are no ayahuasca
1: studies in the U.S. Right. Are, no one has ever had a study uh, approved in the U.S. Where but you said able- you had
0: some addictions. There was some addiction that studies was in Canada. Canada. So Canada. MAPS funded yeah. a study. Gabor
1: Mate did a study in uh, in Northwest Canada.
0: Gabor Mate was had a great speech. But yeah, I was really moved by what yeah. he had yeah. to say. So let's so talk by, us, talk by, to us about this this investigation. Okay. In, so in um,
2: there's there's a group of people in um, British Columbia that have been quite interested in um, ayahuasca research and what they felt would be the most appropriate patient group was people who had problems with addiction and so the study is incredible because they used First Nations people like Native Americans uh-huh. who had their culture decimated and uh, who have lots of problems with addiction. So the subjects were First Nations people. The shaman came from Peru, so we have sort of third-world Peruvians coming with ayahuasca to British Columbia to work with First Nations people mediated by um, Gabor Mate, who is a Western psychiatrist with an expertise in addiction treatment, and um, Philippe Lucas and others um, that were creating a scientific context around it with official Institutional Review Board approval, supported by MAPS, and what they found was that there was a significant, statistically significant reduction in problems with addiction in this group of people. Mm-hmm. And that what the implications are is that psychedelics, just the same way that LSD or psilocybin or other ibogaine can mm-hmm. be helpful in the treatment of addiction, that ayahuasca can be um, useful for treating... Um, various maladies. Now, there's a. Um, so, a certain, how many
0: patients were in the in the group, and was it a? It was, was about a double twelve. It was, like it was double,
2: well. It was um, what was called an observational study. Right. So, what that means is that it wasn't double blind. Right. It was.
0: I can't imagine um, the placebo tea that you
2: have to make. Well, that's a whole other complicated a, scientific issue sure. that we face in all of our studies. How and, dare you make a placebo tea that has no effects that tastes <laughs> like ayahuasca? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what we're leaning towards is what's called dose response, yeah. where the placebo is actually a low dose of ayahuasca. Sure. Well, everybody gets it, but you try to show that the people that had the full dose do but better than yeah, When, the when others. you treat
1: alcoholism or drug addiction, the, uh, the, the ultimate outcome measure is obvious. It's, it, yep. it's establishing and maintaining sobriety. And interestingly, back going back to the late 50s and into the 60s, a clinical area that showed some of the greatest promise with the psychedelic treatment model was the treatment of alcoholism you know an area notorious for lack of responsivity to conventional treatments sure. where we still struggle with chronic alcoholics we still have very limited tools within medicine to utilize people coming in with serious alcohol abuse whereas uh, you know the native peoples u- utilizing peyote ritual or the uh, South Americans and many of the Brazilians I interviewed for our study of ayahuasca were former alcoholics and drug addicts who had a profound transformation and established maintained sobriety since then. Yeah. So um, it's one of the most promising clinical areas to uh, engage it in, in large part because the, the cost to individuals and society are enormous and because even to this point we have very limited conventional treatments that have proven efficacy. Sure.
2: Yeah, I think there, there's two parts. One is that with all of the psychedelics, um, that they uh, sort of remove people's defenses from what they've been suppressing. And that's where you know the, the challenge is to surrender to that. But the classic hallmark of addiction is that people are denial, that they're not paying attention to what they're doing to themselves and others. So that that comes to the surface under the influence of psychedelics, ayahuasca, or others. And then at the same time, people who are addicted often feel isolated and alone and not connected to the world or to others. And that you can get that sense of connection with the psychedelics so that there's the spiritual element and then there's this psychological uh, emergence of repressed material and together in a supportive way. That can be really helpful. Now there is um, the ayahuasca uh, too has a very physically cleansing. Yep. Yeah. And same with the aboga
0: as well. You yeah. feel very. It almost like it resets. You know yeah. some yeah. of your your organ systems. I don't know what the actual effects on your liver and body, but I'll tell you, you feel great yeah. when you're well, finished. Well, not, not only mentally, spirit, because you're psychically, but physically. Oh, yeah. not,
2: not almost. I'm saying that, that that ibogaine is used to help people go through withdrawal to opiates. yeah And they are reset. There, and that, that's actually one of the dangers, too, is sometimes people who relapse take amounts of opiates that they had tolerance. built up a tolerance to, and then they can actually die. And there are cases of people that have tried aboga um, for the treatment of addiction and then readminister Opiates and do it at doses that they use. I I definitely want to
0: chat about Iboga, but is there anything else, just to finish on
2: ayahuasca, is there anything else
0: that ayahuasca is currently being used in clinical research besides addiction? Yeah, so
2: so let me say that there is this kind of challenge within the movement because there are some people who say that ayahuasca comes from a religious tradition and that it's sacrilege to take it out of that religious tradition into a scientific context or even into a therapeutic context. So after the study was done in British Columbia and the results were uh, made public and Gabor Mate spoke about to the media about the success of this treatment, Health Canada came to him and said that he had to stop doing that, that this was a drug, that they were using it in a therapeutic context and that Health Canada would need to give permission for research. And so that if he were to continue doing this, his license would be taken away and he would be put in jail. So I found a donor who was willing to manufacture, pay for the manufacture of freeze-dried, encapsulated ayahuasca, which would be a standardized preparation sure. that Health Canada would accept. The Peruvian shaman refused to work with it because it wasn't their traditional brew. Right. It was right. somehow modified and um, desacralized in a right. way. But to do a research study, it, it, it's of great value to have
1: standardization sure. of, of the compound you're administering. And this is a, there's a uh, a, uh, a research psychologist in Barcelona, Spain, Jordi Riba, who for 15 years has conducted a series of studies with ayahuasca using the freeze-dried ayahuasca because this allows for consistency yeah. of the uh, concentration of alkaloids yeah. in each dose they receive. That yeah. makes sense. And yeah. you don't even have, I mean... The ayahuasca is, is
0: great when you actually use the, the vine and the leaf as they prepare, yeah. but you could get around that another way. You could use Syrian and Rue and yeah, uh, you right. know, some other right. compound, yeah. con- high-containing... Uh,
1: right, and those yeah. farmahuasca, synthetic farm-owasca. DMT yeah. along with synthetic harmine, but, uh,
0: yeah. But it's yeah. n- it's nice to stick with the plants for sure when you can.
2: Well, um, uh, okay. Tell let me why do you say that? Tell tell me what what well, is. Well, I've noticed own...
0: so okay. So my I've noticed in running a nutritional supplement company, there's different things that you can do. You can either take an extract of a plant, and let's say we're we're targeting huperzine. Mm-hmm. right? You can either take uh you can take the Hooperzine, which has been drawn out of the Huperzia serrata, and then blown back on top of a compound, an inert compound, or maybe some dried leaf material and take that and you can take the same amount that you would take in a full spectrum dose, right? And you're gonna have a similar but differing effect. And I've noticed this on down the line from standardized nutritionals that you're trying to get an effect from. Mm -hmm. The effect can be very acute and from the standardized approach where they draw out just that one marker. However, there can be, there's other things that come into play that you feel from a full spectrum extract and you can okay. scientifically yes, verify yes, that it's yes. there's huperzine B, there's huperzine yeah. C, yes. there's other things that come from that that
1: I think have come along with that one marker that maybe yeah, look look, yes, look, yes, look, look at medical marijuana yeah. And, yeah. And, and and you know isolating delta 9 THC is you know is very different than medical marijuana and isolated delta 9 THC is is marinol or what what whatever Is also reported to have some very unpleasant side effects: excessive Mm -hmm. sedation, lack of mental clarity. Mm -hmm. But you know, the marijuana plant contains Mm -hmm. some 60 odd uh, alkaloids, including CBD, which is a natural, which seems to have a a, enormous role in the therapeutic uh, uh, capacity Mm -hmm. of, of marijuana.
2: So. Yeah. So uh, I, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought you were saying that if you have the same molecule, if you get it from a plant or if you make it synthetically, oh, yeah, somehow yeah. or other, it's better to go from the plant. Right.
0: I think you would just miss some of the little subtle things that have come along, that ride along with it when you have a full plant extract. Well, sure. I, I believe, I, I, gotta, I agree
1: yeah. on the full yeah. plant extracts for sure. move my car.
2: Okay. 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 So we'll yeah, be All right. So I'll continue a bit then on the yep. ayahuasca. Yep. Yeah. Um, which is that there is this sort of tension of various um, people from religious traditions saying that having the goal being therapeutic is inappropriate and that the therapy comes along as a side effect, you could say, of the proper religious approach. Come in. Which is in their particular religious framework. Sure. Sure. Um, so, I, I think that there is a lot to be said for the work that Jordi Riva is doing with freeze dried encapsulated ayahuasca. And, and that is a whole plant, you could say, extract. And so, there's been an enormous amount of neuroscience well, research. Well, also,
0: there's also some, some issue with, um, you know, I, I've noticed even in dose preparations in the indigenous. Come on. In. Dose preparations in an indigenous. Setting, you know, from one year to the next, maybe yeah. based on the harvest of the plants yeah. or whatever, yeah. some, the brew was different. Yeah. You know, I mean, just the, the experience across the board from everybody in the group from one year to yeah. the other. The first year, people were having really dramatic visual experiences. The next year, it was more internal and cleansing, and somehow the ratio was different. So having standardization. Makes some sense, you know, because you know yeah. what you're going to get into. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm definitely. I'm sorry, who will be <laughs> saying yes, thinking? we're getting some snacks here. We're <laughs> don't mind us here on the podcast. We need snacks too. Take your opportunity to get some snacks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mediterranean trios, some uh, chicken croquettes, and that matu- too. Uh, very, it's very perfect. Okay. okay. Enjoy. Thanks, Have you. a great day. Thanks. If you need anything, feel free to give us a call. Do you, uh, you still want to keep uh, that, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, and we can remove this tray, and then maybe we'll put this stuff on the table. You want it on the table?
2: Mm-hmm. That's okay. our time. 36. So, okay. So, in terms of ayahuasca, there are some um, interesting projects going on in San Francisco where some people have offered and have taken numerous veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder to um, Peru and then tried to treat their post-traumatic stress disorder with ayahuasca. And they've gotten some good results, but it's also something where their model is different from our our model with MDMA is to provide people with intensive psychotherapeutic support their model was more here's the ayahuasca go heal yourself right and so I think that 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 can work but that that's also more challenging and more difficult it seems like you know with all these medicines it's almost
0: like they're all powerful tools and you could use a wrench to hammer a nail you know if that's your goal or you could use a you know, some of these tools will get the job done for a lot of different applications, but for me, with my experience with them, there seems to be different ones that are particularly good at certain things. Yeah. You know, and I think you've really identified that with the MDMA for PTSD. While these yeah. other things may yeah. work and yeah. get, make some progress, right. that's the right tool for that job. And I kind of feel, you know, I was, when I did my Aboga experience, I could see how that could be the best tool for the addiction model as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because to me the ayahuasca it was almost like I felt like I was accessing information abroad from another source and it was coming it was splashing against my perception and creating these fireworks of visions and colors Mm -hmm. and things that were happening except for that one experience I had where I got really dropped into some lucid clarity and Mm -hmm. the vision stopped but with the boga it was like myself talking to myself Mm -hmm. it was like Mm -hmm a higher, better, smarter Aubrey telling this Aubrey, like, hey, Aubrey, <laughs> this is what's up. This is where you know, things aren't quite right. This is where you could make some improvements. And just, you know, in a good-natured way was literally telling myself in my own voice about all of my own patterns and issues in my life. And I could see how that could be highly effective in an addiction
2: Yeah. Well, setting. not only that, though, that what we're really trying to talk about is psychedelic medicine. Yeah, and so it may be that as people go through a healing process for addiction or for other things, that they sequence through a series of different psychedelics as yeah. well. So there's, um, you know, work that's been done um, in a sort of, you know, underground, unofficial way with people who are dying, who are anxious about dying. And often there's a series of psychedelic experiences um, you know, beginning with MDMA um, to help people in a more gentle way to open up and then mm-hmm. often moving to the more classic psychedelics, mm-hmm. which are more challenging but tend to be more spiritual in certain ways. MDMA is more relational in this world. And then, often ending near the end of life with MDMA, where I've, I've seen it, where somebody was just a few days away from dying, they were on heavy narcotics for the pain, and then the MDMA had the effect of uh, reducing the pain even more so than the narcotics, but then waking people up, yeah. so that they weren't so tranquilized. So I, I think that, which is it, not only important, you know,
0: if people think, oh, they're going to die anyways. Well the impact that that can have on the person in that transition, you know, can be extremely significant. I mean, we don't know exactly what happens on the other side, but for those of us in this field, we have a strong inclination (laughs) that there's something else besides the box that we're going to be experiencing.
2: So there's that and there's also, I mean, that's an interesting point, but I, I think that we experiencing it is a little bit, logically confusing because I think after we die there is no us you know we are dissolved we don't know and we don't know but we don't know but
0: but but my point of that was that it's not only going to affect that person it's going to affect everybody around them as well their whole family being able to have that moment of clarity and connection can heal decades later of pain that you would have had to deal with so it's not only therapy for the person who's dying it's therapy for everybody else around that person
2: yeah exactly and there's a, a um Woman Marilyn Howell, who's written a book that Maps has published, "Honor Thy Daughter," and it's about the um, underground uh, treatment of her daughter as she was dying of cancer with this series of psychedelics. And she ended So, what up was the
0: progression that, that they used, if you uh, can recall? Yeah,
2: it. yeah, they used um, an initial uh, two experiences with MDMA. Then they switched to mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Then they switched to LSD. But the LSD was. Um, a little bit more challenging than the um, woman who was dying was was ready for so then they supplemented it with MDMA, MDMA so yeah. an MDMA um, LSD combination and they, even that was resisted and then after like six seven hours um, they added marijuana and that opened the floodgates really yeah and then then it went on for many many hours more and then they went back um, several days before she died to do MDMA with her mother and father there, and that was just a fantastic um, emergence from the tragedy of a young woman dying, the only child, without children, um, to uh, a point where she said um, how beautiful it was to be able to die with her mother and father there with her. Um, And then several days later, as she was actually dying, she was administered MDMA, which caused her to relax and to um, have a more peaceful death. Yeah. So I, I think that finding and matching the psychedelic to the clinical condition to the particular kind of person, too, that that's something that is highly sophisticated, and that's something that we will be getting towards. Yeah eventually. And, and that's what's happening now in modern... And then
0: even if it's not a clinical condition, let's just say, you know, I had a, a vision of almost a replacement for a new type of church, you know, church mm-hmm. of yeah, experience yeah. that you would call yeah. it, where your pastor, you'd be able to go in and talk about your problems and see what's up, and he would be able to dial in whatever he thought might be the best. Sure, maybe it was, you know, MDMA would yeah. really open your heart, allow you to see through some of this yeah. trauma. Or he would say, uh, you know, you seem to have some addictive psychological traits. I think a yeah, session with yeah. the boga would be yeah. preferable for you. Meet you here next Sunday. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and be able to dial in, even for non-clinical conditions,
2: but for everybody. Well, I, I think that our focus on pathology, our focus, you know, much of this discussion has been about psychedelics for predict, particular disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more of a strategic decision about our culture being uh, providing legal context for scientific research and for the development of medicines i think the idea of psychedelics as tools for you know otherwise healthy people throughout their life span not just you know you know for rites of passage in their teenage years or sure. you know for uh, working on relationships um... you know when they're older and trying to figure out who to f- you know be in love with yeah that then you know later for midlife crisis and then later as people are preparing to die so i think this idea that what we're ultimately going for is a society that has integrated and mainstreamed the access to a range of states of consciousness from a range of substances for people who are otherwise healthy and normal yeah. Both in religious context, medical context, or just personal growth. And I think that's the end state that we'd like to see. Um, but I think for strategic reasons we need to work within a medical I agree. context. I think that's the only um,
0: the so, only way to ultimately get there. This is yeah. the step. Yeah. This is the you know, the stone on the pond that you have to cross before you can ultimately yeah. get Yeah. And beyond. I think
2: within the next twenty years, there's a real good chance that we will see that. I mean we're predicting that Um, you know, MDMA can become a prescription medicine for post-traumatic stress disorder within about 10 years, after people are thinking about psilocybin for end of life, maybe even faster than that. Um, And and you never know, too, at a certain point with these studies coming out, the
0: critical mass of awareness and acceptance, because you publish this data, Yeah. Yeah. you know, at the point that you're in full phase two or phase three before the new drug application, it might be like, all right, come on, you know, everybody may just wake up and this could happen faster or yeah. maybe you have to take it all the way to the
2: bitter end and yeah. get that NDA you know yeah o- or we take it we get the new drug approval and then it takes another 10 20 30 years to really roll it out in society the same way i was describing with the hospice movement the first one um, you know 30 years later there was one in every town but maybe it 30 but now, years
0: but now the proliferation of information is so good that it, you know it, people you know. are gonna Google it and be like, oh I want that. Look <laughs> like, at yeah, the yeah. results of that. That one yeah. looked good. Yeah. You know, so I think but it'll it'll it come faster. faster than it than yeah. it used to. So
2: to get back to what you were wanting to do, which was eat drug by drug. So with ayahuasca, there are there's a fellow Jacques Mabit in Peru that's doing research with ayahuasca in the treatment mm-hmm. of addiction um he does a different approach in the sense that it's a residential program lasting months and uses ayahuasca as well as a whole host of other herbal medicines. Mm-hmm. A lot of purgatives. A lot of purgatives and. As if ayahuasca wasn't a strong enough purgative, <laughs> he needed more. Yeah. Yeah. How rude. He, How rude. he
1: preps people with purgative plants, you know, long before they. they, they he well, there is some ayahuasca. kind of tradition of
0: smoking a lot of that
1: tobacco till you. Yeah purge
2: from that before you go into session. Yeah, and that's Same what worked session. for you, having it blown out. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's not that much clinical research with ayahuasca. The only clinical research in the world is taking place in uh, Barcelona with uh, Jordi Riva and his team. Mm-hmm. The observational research that we've described is um, is over now, and because Health Canada came and cracked down, there's no other well, we, uh, we, efforts we going on there.
1: Some of it. You know, I and mean, well-designed
2: Ayahuasca research, but back in the uh, '90s and the early 2000s. Well, I thought well, the the study that you did that was particularly important. I thought, and again, these are sort of um, comparisons. You're not you weren't actually um, for for the study that I thought was particularly important. You mentioned it earlier about the adolescents mm-hmm. who had grown up in Ayahuasca cultures. Right. Some and how did expo- they compare? Some had
1: been exposed in utero. Right. So, uh, their mothers had some of their mothers had taken small doses of ayahuasca during uh, labor and delivery, and these were very high-functioning kids. And we've, uh, we we studied their their psychological, neuropsychological function, and took extensive history, psychiatric interviews. Wow! Talk they about they a
0: powerful experience having birth
1: while on yeah, ayahuasca. Yeah, for the mother and the and the child. Yeah, I've been present when babies have been baptized with eyedropperfuls of ayahuasca. Wow. And then, generally, UDV, the UDV, you know, kids do not participate in ceremonies until they hit puberty, and then it's their choice. They have, they have the option of uh, accompanying their parents to ceremonies and being administered initially at least very you know very
2: modest residue. Yeah, I, I was in a wedding ceremony in a Native American Church peyote context. Mm-hmm. So it was an all night ceremony, and there was um, uh, one of the men who was there participating brought his nine-year-old son. And the nine-year-old son took small amounts of peyote, but spent the whole night up with everybody. That's great. So I think the age limits that we have in our culture are particularly destructive and not helpful. Mm -hmm. And, And I say that as a um, father, Wait, you, mean, you, of, mean, you mean all the alcohol prohibition hasn't stopped <laughs> teens from drinking? Well, I, I have three teenage kids right now, so I, I'm at the maximum chaos and oh, rebellion phase oh, of the, three teenagers. It's the forbidden fruit, it makes um, it all the more. And the yeah, 14, value. 17, 18.
1: You can, and you can 18. just look at
0: the statistics American teens drink more than anybody. Huh? You know, yeah, I've seen some statistics that yeah. look like that. Well, oh, the
1: binge alcohol drinking. Sure, because like you get it, because you get it
2: finally, and then. You know, you yeah. go crazy. Yeah. So I, I think with with ayahuasca, there could be a lot more scientific research than there is right now. Sure. Um, and I think the the issue is both will traditional healers be willing to work with freeze dried and encapsulated ayahuasca? The answer generally seems to be no. Um, and then the other part of this again is who is funding this research, and where does the money come from? And so. Trying to make, I have actually been asked not to do much in terms of developing ayahuasca into a medicine, out of respect for its spiritual use, Uh and so that that's something that I've um, considered a lot. Well, I
0: I think I think the MDMA choice is a good one because that's there is no there are no places in the world where that's legal, right? You know, like if you really want to do ayahuasca, you can still go to Peru or go to Brazil. I mean, it's a little expensive. Um, and if you yeah. want to do a BOGA, you can go to the UK, you can go to Canada, you can go to Mexico. Yeah. These are very powerful medicines. That, but yeah. there is an outlet. There is an option. You know, I'm able yeah. to take it and talk about it and tell people because the context where I did it was fully legal. And yeah. uh, that was yeah. great. You don't have to worry about anything. So, yes, it's unfortunate that it's expensive. It's going to preclude a lot of people from getting the benefits. But something like MDMA, um, is, as far as I'm aware, it's not legal anywhere.
2: No, that that's the success of the United States in exporting our drug policy through the international treaty organizations so that there is no place in the world where MDMA is legal. And it's only legal now in the context of research. Yeah. And right now, we have finished uh, two studies, one in the United States and one in Switzerland, for MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder with outstanding results. And we have additional studies actively underway right now um, in Israel, um, in Boulder, Colorado, and in Charleston, South Carolina, the one with veterans, firefighters, and police officers. We're uh, soon to start a study in Canada for post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are all what are called phase two studies. And Mm -hmm. these are pilot studies trying to understand from a scientific perspective a series of methodological questions that prepare you to do the definitive phase three studies, right, which we hope will start in uh, you know about three years so let's let's you
0: know let's dig into MDMA because <clears throat> you know um, I think that's something that's got a lot of momentum and certainly yeah. an area of expertise for both of you guys so let's talk about first there's there was a, a big myth about the negative effects of this that you know one dose is going to fry your brain so let's talk about a little bit about the mechanism of action what it's doing to release the neurochemicals and then what is actually happening and what the negative effects if any there are in in real life and not in hyperbole
1: well it's a powerful releaser of serotonin and uh, about um, you know 15 18 years ago there was a lot of concern raised about the potential to cause so-called neurotoxicity in the serotonergic system. Um, They they identified that in animal models, or animals, they injected very, very high dosages of the drug, that once they sacrificed the animal and uh, examined the brain, there was some degeneration of peripheral axons, uh, however, the cell bodies were spared. There has never been get any good data substantiating that ne- a neurotoxic process occurs in, in, in humans, and in fact we're hardly hearing about neurotoxicity any longer, in, long, in large part because of a, of a scandal that occurred in the uh, neurotoxicity field. And I think 2002 the journal Science, maybe the most preci- prestigious journal in the world, uh, published to uh, high media attention a a study looking at uh, the brains of monkeys that had been administered, so they said, with high dosages of MDMA. Whoops! We put a little methamphetamine well, in. Well, <laughs> yeah, you're jumping ahead, but they, they they reported damage to the dopamine system. Uh-huh. So the implication there is that all of these people who are using um uh mdma will ultimately be very vulnerable for parkinson's disease mm-hmm. but uh a year later in the same journal in a back page a little paragraph uh, there was a retraction that basically said whoops it wasn't mdma mdma that was administered rather it was methamphetamine <laughs> now the newspapers they both not, start with them that's pretty good for, well, yeah, for yeah, science yeah. you know yeah. They're very, they have very different effects uh, yeah. clinically and uh, obviously neurophysiologically. But um, uh, ever since, and, and there was no, there was very minimal media coverage of that retraction. And in fact, that episode was featured in a book written by a science writer named Simon Levay. Uh, the book was called "When Science Goes Wrong." Uh, the, uh, the 10 greatest fiascos in the history of science and this episode weighed in at number four <laughs> and yeah. ever since the neurotoxicity issue seems to have more or less sure. you talk, now, you know, you, yeah. but it, it vanished maybe for the years, or
0: but, you know, you talk to someone who heard that and hasn't well, hasn't uh, heard anything else okay, about it, it true. still persists. Right. So you we know, have to distinguish still doing between, damage today. Yeah, yes.
1: between a, a, an MDMA treatment model where the drug might be utilized on only one occasion versus um, excessive recreational use, where some individuals are predisposed to u- using quite a bit of whatever they get involved with. And, and, that's and another, then there's a and lot of drug problem, substitution. Yeah. There's a lot of so-called ecstasy or so-called molly which uh, is presumed to be MDMA, but on analysis, it turns out to be very different drugs, some of which are rather innocuous, like Benadryl or aspirin, and some of which are very dangerous and potentially lethal, like paramethoxyamphetamine or PMA, the most potent amphetamine known. And in fact, there have been a number of so-called ecstasy deaths when they reported the analysis of the drug used turned out not to be MDMA but rather PMA so MDMA has garnered a very uh, negative reputation uh, to some degree unfairly i think because of this drug substitution but also there uh, it is important for people to realize that too much of a good thing is not necessarily a better good thing. for you. Yeah. yeah, it could be problematic. So, sure. it, in moderation would be the uh, the approach to take with this yeah. and other compounds. Uh,
2: I, I think that the the focus on neurotoxicity in, in terms of our discussion is really important because I think the obligation that we have, those of us who are, you know, advocating for the medical use, is that we have to be the experts on both the benefits and the risks. Yeah, and that the government, um, the drug control portions the prohibition portions of the government and their private supporters sort of forfeited um, their credibility by denying the benefits and exaggerating the risks and we have to be very careful not to do the opposite of exaggerating the benefits and denying the risks. So uh-huh. uh, the first hint of MDMA neurotoxicity came in 1985 and it was uh, Dr. George Carty at the University of Chicago doing work in rats with MDA not with MDMA And I heard about that when I was um, in Geneva, Switzerland, lobbying the WHO to try to slow down their uh, attempted criminalization of MDMA and to try to get them to endorse um, the therapeutic use. And I heard from uh, Dr. Bob Schuster, who was the PhD advisor for George Riccardi, that there was this particular concern about MDMA affecting serotonin, and he felt that it was um, likely to be mild, not that significant, he felt MDMA should be available as a prescription medicine. So, then the Phil Donahue show, in 85, they wanted to do an MDMA story, and I suggested that uh, Bob Schuster be on the show, because he had these reasonable views. Also on the same show was a fellow named Gene Haislip from the DEA, and so during the discussion, Bob Schuster mentioned this study, he, he didn't mention it in any alarming way, but he said that there was some evidence from MDA in rats, and uh, Gene Hasel from DEA realized that um, this was a reason that they could use to emergency criminalize MDMA, and so we were already engaged in DEA administrative law judge hearings that we were winning, that we were winning in the media about the therapeutic use, and so MDMA was criminalized. On an emergency basis. so And ironically, that itself was illegal. The DEA did not have the power to do emergency scheduling. Uh, mm-hmm. The Department of Justice, the Attorney General had, but it never subdelegated it down to the DEA. So, neurotoxicity was part of this story from the very beginning. Yeah. And so, I felt that it was our obligation, uh, and MAPS was started in 86, to try to really understand what, what the risks were. So I purchased the first monkeys for George Riccardi. I know a lot of people are not that sympathetic to animal research, and we do it only when necessary. And in well, a it's a little different way.
0: giving monkeys MDMA versus giving monkeys Oh, But then, know, then they're
1: sacrificed. Well, wow. yeah, then they're sacrificed. At sacrifice. least they got to have some
2: fun before they <laughs> They're not top seed. So I, I purchased the first monkeys um, for George Riccardi, and we found, he found what was called the no effect level which is um, it was two and a half milligrams per kilogram again not given orally but um, directly into the stomach and um, given every two weeks for uh, four months for eight times and so there's no effect on the serotonin system from Mm -hmm. two and a half milligrams per kilogram relatively
1: speaking that's a fairly high dose yeah administered repeatedly
2: yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but and he refused to publish that. Actually, he published the five milligram per kilogram, where he saw some basic minor effects on reduction of serotonin nerve terminals. So, so there's
0: having no no. You're, when you say no effect dose, you're saying no negative effect dose.
2: Well, no effect on serotonin on the serotonin on, on no long-term but The monkeys effect on were serotonin. behaving in peculiar ways. I presume. Well, um, actually. Um, it turns out that uh, it, it depends on the dose. Sometimes, at a lower lower doses, the monkeys actually are more social. Yeah. This was also done with dogs as well, um, and so I then moved on to work with George and provided the first humans. So this is in the late eighties, um, where there was uh, just the beginning of uh, there was no real brain scan stuff. This is how Rick and I met actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the same group
1: had published a study in, in human subjects where they uh, administered a, a, a test called the L-tryptophan challenge test, which was an indirect measure of serotonin function, and they claimed that they found abnormal results in MDMA exposed users compared to normal uh, normal control volunteers and uh, I, it was published in a very prominent journal. I wrote a letter to the editor critiquing much of the methodology. And uh, a few weeks after it, my letter to the editor was published, I got a call from someone introducing himself as Rick Dopplin. i never heard of Rick <laughs> Dopplin, This was in the late 80s. And he said that Sasha Shulgin had referred him to my letter, and he he wanted to meet with me. And he, he said, you know, um, The flaws you're reporting on in that study of the L-tryptophan challenge test, you don't know the least of it. So he came and visited me and told me that the study was far more flawed than I even imagined. What the study did not uh, uh, mention was that the subjects had been selected from subjects in a previous study at Stanford University where they did spinal taps to look at the uh, cerebrospinal fluid metabolite of serotonin, and they selected the people from the lower end of the spectrum of CSF uh, serotonin metabolite uh, uh, levels for the L-tryptophan challenge test. So I mean, you can do a study like that, but in your methodology, you have to explain sure. yeah. that you have a you have a selection bias. Yeah, you have, a, yeah, you have a serotonin right. challenge.
0: So yeah. that's, how, that's how we we yeah. met. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I I felt that so I wait, had. Is, to do. There, is there like a conspiracy kind of going on here, or is this just bad science? I well, mean, it's it,
1: certainly bad science, and um, it's also look you know to get funding is uh, not an easy task but if you if you come up with some uh, approaches which will perhaps reliably identify presumed dangers of drugs that are considered pariah taboo drugs you, you you'll have a much easier time getting funding and launching your mm-hmm. research career than if you would uh, come up with uh, negative data or even data pointing to therapeutic potentials that's a uh, that that is considered a career killer, right there. So I I hate to rush this
2: conversation okay. along, but we may get uh, we may run out of time okay. here, even in the conference. So So, okay. so with MDMA. So I so anyway. So I was the first one that got a spinal tap, and then I was able to um, volunteer whole bring a whole lot of other people too. And so, so so I think that um, we have done our best to try to understand the risks, and I think that we have on our website it's called the investigator's brochure. There's over 3,000 papers on MDMA. We've summarized all of them. We've done a risk-benefit analysis, and it's our view that in a clinical setting with pure MDMA, roughly in the range of 125 milligrams, that there is no evidence that we've been able to gather of harm. We've done neurocognitive tests before and after and showed showed actually slight increases, not declines. So I think that in a therapeutic context, the risk benefit ratio is favorable and that's what we've been able to control. so so right,
0: so we've established the risk and so what I wanted to jump forward to is the benefit okay and and so that is you know in releasing a lot of these neurochemicals you're getting to states that are have very beneficial Mindsets for for individuals, and I, you just mentioned even the oxytocin, which is one of the right. compounds released, and you get that when you hug somebody, right? what right. it's, when it's that's the amazing? bonding
1: hormone, and, and when women been, are nursing, yeah, it's been demonstrated to uh, secretion of endogenous oxytocin increases with admi- following administration of MDMA. So there, there might be a neuroendocrine, uh, uh, you know, explanation for for some of the. Potential therapeutic action
2: on, on yeah. MDMA. So MDMA reduces activity in the the left amygdala, which is a fear processing center of the brain. It enhances activity in the frontal cortex, which is where people do the uh, put things in context. And then it also stimulates oxytocin and prolactin. And so that suggests that it could be especially helpful for post traumatic stress disorder or for. Um, difficult emotions mdma is terrific for relationships that's why it's so power, so popular for emotional relationships sure. but or your I, relationship to the world at large
0: Yeah. you know i mean i've uh, because of some of the risks and the impurities and issues you know me just tending not to like to do things that are illegal anymore um i don't do i don't do it but I remember, and I'll, you know, I haven't ever talked about this, but my first experience with MDMA was in Australia, and I was away on a semester abroad in Australia, and a girl I met there at the time um, gave me some to try, and I remember walking around the streets of Brisbane, and thinking, "Wow, look at all these people! Like I saw, and I cared for strangers, just random strangers, and that was." Obviously, I cared for her a lot, yeah, too. Yeah. But just even people, like I saw a girl crying across mm-hmm. the way, and I was like, oh, that's really unfortunate for her. I wish she could see how beautiful things are. Yeah. you know. And people who are angry, or fron- I saw the whole world mm-hmm. in a different way, and I felt connected to the rest of the world. And that was therapy in itself that I've, yeah. you know, it, it fades, but once you establish that, you don't tend to forget yeah,
1: it. M- MDMA appears to have a u- unique facility to... Um, uh, Allow people to experience states of empathy. In fact, Ralph Metzner yeah. suggested that a, a that it be considered that that class of uh, compound be considered empathogens, which I think is a good it's a good term term for it. Yeah.
2: However, as we talked before, you know, having um, improving relationships or having a difficult relationship is not a disease. Yeah. So that's why there's no research there. So, it's but tough. that is one of the benefits. We did a study briefly. At Harvard for MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety, and um, found in the few people that were treated that it had, you know, substantial uh, positive benefits. But mostly the research is in post-traumatic stress disorder, and then the new study that Charlie and Alicia Danforth are going to be starting with MDMA for autistic adults with social anxiety. Mm -hmm. Targeting the social anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that there are other potential uses of MDMA, but in terms of focusing strategically on where we get the most benefit, those are the only areas of MDMA that's being researched. Well, you've got
0: to focus your targets and then get it
1: approved, yeah. and then the off-label use can
0: yes. you know,
2: accommodate right. that with a lot yeah. of forward yeah. we're, we're, thinking.
0: We're working yeah. our way
1: through the regulatory system. So far, so good. Where we're, having our, where we've, uh, where we're cu- bumping up against the biggest obstacle, though, is uh, accessing sufficient funding. That's a chronic issue, and uh, and for this particular study, it's uh, it's the biggest uh, stumbling block right, right now in you know in terms of uh, anticipating a startup time. All right, so that brings you know brings us to the point. If you're listening to this,
0: you want to contribute to the cause. Go to maps.org, and you know, donate a little bit, donate a lot, or if you right. know somebody who might be sympathetic. You know, get him to listen to a podcast, mine or Joe's. I mean, he had a great interview with Joe Rogan on Joe Rogan Experience, or do the research, find it out. And because this is, in my mind, one of the frontiers that could really make a positive change, not just in individuals, but in the collective. And, um, you know, I certainly applaud the work you're doing. So to, to bring that out to the broader approach, you know, let's, let's fast forward, you know, 30 years everything's legal. You know, what does this world look like? How do you think this could this could integrate into this well, future
2: society? Well, I, I think that if we um, put in our mind hospice centers or um, even kidney uh, dialysis, dialysis centers, I think there will be psychedelic treatment centers, and they'll be in most every city in the world. Mm-hmm. And that people will be able to go to... Um, therapists, psychiatrists that have specialized training, um, and they will be able to have these experiences in a legal context, not just for illnesses, but also for personal growth, if we're talking 30 years from now. Um, I think we will will probably have a society where access to altered states through drugs has been um, legitimized. And I think one of our projects in terms of Um, building a post-prohibition world is to recognize that in these rites of passage that people are creating at festivals, that there are going to be a lot of problems, that that just legalizing drugs doesn't end drug problems. It just gives you a different approach towards dealing with them. And so what we've tried to demonstrate in some of the more high-profile events, like uh, Burning Man, like Boom festival in portugal and vision in costa rica africa burn in south africa and and others is what we're calling um psychedelic harm reduction Mm -hmm. so that people who particularly younger people who go out to party with psychedelics i think often don't have the proper understanding that you can't just slice off the positive side of these things sure that difficult issues may come up and you may end up needing to deal with them. And when you run from them, they come after you, as you said. So what we've created is um, teams of experienced therapists, medical professionals, and volunteers that have created special places for people to go at festivals when they're having a difficult psychedelic experience. And they're then um, supported through their experience to the extent that they want to. So that... Um, and then they're free to go back to the festival and we found that in these events the police tend to be very sympathetic and not um, you know in boom in Portugal it's the world example of psychedelic harm reduction because drugs are decriminalized all drugs and so the festival has powerful Portugal 25 30,000 people they have on-site thin layer chromatography high-tech drug testing to identify which of these pills are actually, what do they actually contain? Uh-huh. Then they, they have PowerPoint presentations that broadcast them to everybody that's there. They have, uh, in, at Boom, it's called Cosmic Care. At Burning Man, we call it the Zendo Project. We just had an Indiegogo campaign to raise money for our um, Zendo Project, and we had a goal of 10,000, and we've already got 12,500. Um, but I think the idea is, in the future, it's not like these drugs are without risk and I think people have to approach them with caution and really be willing to open up to whatever range of experiences that comes up and so I think we will be able though to Charlie talked about the PMA that's caused a lot of people to die from from, adulterated ecstasy pills that are not really MDMA so that should be eliminated in a post prohibition world there will be pure drugs, there will be known quantity there will be Harm reduction approaches that are widespread and not um, make festival owners vulnerable. We have an anti rave act that was designed. Our drug policy is a harm maximization policy, designed to scare people away from doing things, mm. and it penalizes the users and makes them worse off. Yeah, and it doesn't seem really to scare that many people off from it either.
0: Well, because you can, know, people have a good sense of bullshit, you yeah. know, and they call yeah. bullshit on it. You know, if they were actually honest and, and people got to trust the re- the sources, like the Zendo yeah. pro- you know, people yeah. in there, they probably get trusted because, yeah. you know, they're not feeding them a bunch of bullshit. And that's what I think, there's a reckoning right now going on in, across multiple governmental levels in multiple countries where people are calling bullshit, saying, yeah. uh, no, that's not true. And we know about it, you know, in America in a great extent, but we just don't care quite enough yet. To re- we know there's a lot of bullshit afoot, but we're like, ah, that's exhausting Just think about it, Let me just go on with my day-to-day life. But I think the, the trend is in that favor of being able to discard that bad information and uh, the proliferation of information of the Internet and social yeah, media. Yeah, your podcasts are great for
2: getting information out.
0: It all makes, you know, it all contributes to the to the puzzle, you know, and uh, getting that awareness Shifted Now, there's going to be resistance, of course, to all yeah. of this on every step. The more success, the more a small group will come out against it. But. So,
1: yes, yeah, so I agree with her. Over, over time, we'd like to see more emphasis on uh, harm reduction, uh, maximization of, of, of health and safety. But there's, there's a whole other um, element here, which is uh, I've, I've noted particularly with ayahuasca use, it, it, it appears to facilitate in people who've tried it greater awareness and sensitivity to what's going on in the environment. It allows them to connect with nature and allows them to be more aware and, and, and more uh, prone to speaking up about uh, the uh, harms inflicted on, on, on the natural world and the risk it puts human civilization at.
0: It, you know, and I think one of the reasons why it does that is it removes that separation that we feel yeah, from right, nature. Yeah, right. It's so yeah. all of a sudden, oh, wait a
1: minute, I'm yeah. a part of this well, yeah. whole I mean, system na- here. Nature, I yeah. think we've yeah. been, uh, we get conditioned to seeing it just as a backdrop, just as, uh, you, you know, yeah. the, the, the scenery, whichever way. But, but uh, these compounds facilitate an awareness of, oh, my God, nature is alive. Yeah, and I'm part of it. And I'm part of it. And I depend upon its health and well-being for my health and well-being. And my children's health and well-being. And their children. Well, thank you to you both on behalf
0: of the world for for the research that you're doing. I don't speak for the world often, but in this case, I feel comfortable thanking you on behalf of the world. Um, And thanks for doing this podcast, of course. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you guys and have this conversation and put it out. So... Thanks again. And how can they how can they get a hold of of uh, you guys? Either
2: you know you have all your your URLs, maps.org, um, yeah, social media, and yeah, we're on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, Ask Maps at maps.org if they have any questions. Just you know email us. We have staff that monitors our email address, and we try to respond to everybody. Sometimes not right away, but we try to respond to everybody. Great. And, uh, you know, everybody's questions are important, and we'll do our best to respond to them. And we have an enormous amount of information on the website
1: Great. as well. In, in addition to my involvement with Rick and with MAPS, I'm also part of the Hefter Research Institute. I'm on the board of Hefter. Doing so a lot
0: of research with psilocybin. We didn't get to touch too much to on touch that. that. But we did a another psilocybin
1: end-of-life site. We'll do that another time. But yep. Hefter is doing a lot of really good work. You can access Hef- Hefter's uh, activities on www.hefter.org.
2: Yeah, there, there's also the Beckley Foundation in England. and She gave a great speech, too. Yeah, Amanda. She's, she's oh, a little fired up still. I like <laughs> oh, that. yeah, uh, yeah. She's a little
1: mad. Yeah, she's yeah. terrific. Uh, she, 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 she wields some influence in yeah. a very good way.
2: Yeah, and, and she's more interested um, in the sort of basic neuroscience yeah. of how LSD, and she's particularly interested in LSD mm-hmm. and how it works in the brain. And um, also policy and policy. I think what's really good about Amanda is that she's been understanding the the link between the scientific research and the drug policy reform and how that's necessary. And then there's also the Council on Spiritual Practices which has helped with Bob Jesse
1: who's funded some tremendous research at Johns Hopkins. The Roland Griffiths group is doing superb work looking at uh, psilocybin uh, facilitating psychospiritual experience which are then predictive of positive therapeutic outcomes. Very cool. Very cool indeed. Yeah. and and it
0: was—it's the next time. I don't know when the next conference is going to be. I guess it's in Europe next year, right?
2: Well, um, there was no. It's probably going to be in two thousand and fifteen. Okay. And Gaia Media, the ones that organized the hundredth anniversary of Albert Hoffman's birth, his hundredth birthday in two thousand and six, and then the conference, um, World Psychedelic Forum in two thousand and eight. Then they gave it back to us for our Psychedelic Science 2010, and then Psychedelic Science 2013. And so I've given it back to them to do the next one probably in 2015. And then there's a group in England called Breaking Convention that does them every two years in the odd years. There's a group called the Open Institute in the Netherlands that tries to organize conferences on an irregular basis. I would say there's a good chance that the next large international conference focused on Psychedelic Science in the U.S. We'll probably, in the U.S. we'll probably be um, 2016 because we want to wait for the science to There will be a lot of cool stuff coming out
0: between now and then for sure, <laughs> well, so that'll be, well, that'll well, be one to catch. Time. If you wanted to look at any of the talks, they're all online as well, which yeah. is really cool. Go to maps.org and check out the talks from the uh, Psychedelic Science 2013. Some
2: really great yeah. stuff in there as well. Yeah, yeah, they're all up there for free. We, we think that public education is in some ways even more important than the research Mm -hmm. because the public fear, the public hope about these works is what drives both the drug war or or also the moves towards liberalizing and opening the door to research. So that's why I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to them. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, you know, that's one one final point here. You know, the people who are really frustrated with the government about the thing, ultimately, if enough people want something, politicians will run on that platform yeah, and say, okay, yeah. this is what all the people want. I'm going to get elected by doing what the people yeah. want. So instead of being frustrated with the politicians, go out, convince two or three friends to be open-minded and look at the research. Just look at the research for themselves with a fair and balanced opinion. And not to use Fox News's term, <laughs> that was scary. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just look at it and analyze the data, come to their own conclusions. And you're actually pushing the cause forward right. just by doing that. Right. And politics will react to uh, popular demand ultimately you know if uh, if the system works so that's something that everybody can do besides of course contributing and uh perfect timing as we're about to get kicked out
1: <laughs> of here, guys.
0: But, uh, we'll have to do this again sometime yeah. i really appreciate thank having you guys thank Come you